0: The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the air. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it.
1: Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I'm joined today by your host Jen Gallagher, aka Fatty Bulger. <laughs>
0: And I am joined by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. the Dark Lord Sauron. Oh,
1: that's good revenge. And <laughs> we are joined by a very special guest this week, Jordan Rennell's, a.k.a. Finrod Felagund. Welcome.
2: <laughs> Welcome.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Now, I, I chose Finrod Felagund for a very special reason. You probably know his history when he uh, first encountered men. He sang to them and uh, taught them to speak through songs. So I thought that was very
3: appropriate for you. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah, I won't be singing for you, but uh, I accept
1: the title. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, Jordan, uh, he's a musician, composer, and host of the Music of Middle Earth podcast, uh, where Jordan is diving deep into Howard Shore's epic score and the sound design from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Jordan is also a producer of the Prancing Pony podcast, which is probably the most popular Tolkien podcast out there today. And in September, I hear, Jordan, uh, you're launching a new podcast on Star Wars sound design. So, man, you are busy. I am. It's going to be fun, though. I'm excited. I don't know where you find the time to do anything else. (laughs) Little bits here and there. That's
3: only a portion of what I'm working on. So. Oh, get out of here! What is that <laughs> humble brag?
0: <laughs> yeah, for those of you who have not heard his podcast, please check it out. It's so awesome. It just goes. It's a deep dive into all the amazing music in Lord of the Rings and its I've been listening to it to fall asleep at night. It's very soothing and, and it's just absolutely wonderful. So we're so excited to have him and today we are kicking off our series looking at Peter Jackson's adaptations of The Lord of the Rings. Um, so we're going to be talking through the first 29 minutes and 51 seconds of the extended edition, duh, the only edition <laughs> in my book, of The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, and this basically takes us up to the point that Bilbo gives up the ring and leaves Hobbiton for Rivendell. So Michael and I are so excited to have you with us because we're both musicians ourselves, Jordan, and we love Howard Shore's score. We really appreciate the work you're doing and the Music of Middle Earth podcast. And we could think of nobody better to help us kick off our series on Peter Jackson's films.
3: Well, thank you. I'm excited to dive in and explore this uh, introduction Again, for how yeah. many? Who knows how many times we've watched it? But it just yeah, gets better.
1: I, I've I've stopped keeping track. If I was like a prisoner in jail and like marking the, you know, it's, it's like I'm marking the days that go by in jail. That's how many times I've watched it. Just like a bunch of slash yeah. marks on the side of my wall. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: For me, it's like the holidays. Like the holiday, at least once a year.
1: So one of the fun things about this podcast. I mean, I, I should admit, I probably for the last, I don't know, like three four years, I haven't been doing much. Tolkien stuff, like I just I, I used to read the books like repeatedly, and you know who knows how so many times, and watch the movies, you know who knows how so many times. But uh, last few years, I haven't been doing that as much. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the joys of this whole project, and Jordan, I'm sure you experience this as well on, on your podcast, is it gives you kind of like a deliberate, goal-oriented way to approach something that you already loved and have watched and, and listened to a million times before, and um, as a result, you kind of learn to appreciate it in new ways and and get new things out of it. Exactly. Yeah. You start to like,
3: when I listen, when I watch the movies, as we were saying before, you know, you can watch the appendices. That's like a whole viewing process. You can watch the movies and then there's like the four or five commentaries that you can watch. Um, And they're all like different experiences of watching the movies again. And I feel like watching it for the music or for the sound design is just a whole other experience as well, and something that I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Is that you kind of don't realize until you start to focus on it that there's music almost all the time mm-hmm. in the movie, which is not necessarily common for movies. I would say, you know, some some do that, but it's. I remember seeing Return of the King in theaters. Um, they released the extended edition in the theater. And we went to see it. Uh, It was ridiculously long as we know, but I was that whole time I was thinking, wow, there's music in like every scene throughout the whole thing. It's pretty crazy. So it's fun to, to go back and almost exclusively listen for that.
1: Right. And so when I watched this, you know, the 29 minutes and 51 seconds in preparation for this uh, recording session and I knew that you were going to be joining us, I I definitely was in my mind. I I started listening to the music and hearing things I I hadn't really heard before. Obviously I'd I'd always heard and appreciated the music, but, you know, noticing when he would transition from one theme to a version of another theme sort of in the Mm -hmm. middle. And there'll be instances where we talk about that um, later on, but it, it really is remarkable how Howard Shore does that. I mean, consistently there's consistent music going on and he's constantly weaving in the themes with what's going on in the plot yeah definitely definitely so before we get too deep into it you know since this is this is our first time meeting you and getting to know you and mm-hmm. um you know some of our vans is probably the same thing so uh, i thought it'd be fun to do kind of a, a quick little q a if you're up for it just a, a couple sure. of rapid fire questions <laughs> um sounds good and it's not a quiz <laughs> okay good <laughs> but uh <laughs> first thing, how did you start playing music? what was your journey to starting music and what's your main instrument? Um, well I actually started playing alto
3: saxophone back in in like grade seven grade eight and then I started playing guitar a little bit because my dad played guitar and I never I, I kind of casually played I didn't really take lessons I, I took a few months of lessons but it was never like a focus um, but then around grade 10 or 11 i think it was i picked up a bass hmm. and i discovered um victor wooten i don't nice. know, if you know who victor oh yeah is. yeah um so he's probably my favorite musician and i was lucky to have found his his music but also his teaching style when i was young um so i started diving into his teachings and then took the bass seriously after that and kind of continued on with it. And I've been to Victor's camps a bunch of times in Nashville and I got to volunteer at some of them, which was really cool because I get to work be kind of behind the scenes with Victor, which was really fun. But, um, yeah, that's kind of how I started and I've always wanted to, to focus more on like composition so it's, it's cool that it's kind of aimed towards that mm-hmm. more recently. But but bass is my main instrument.
1: I have a few of them here with me. Nice. So, yes. So the yeah. way that I... So Victor Wooten is a, is a genius, a total genius. And I'm familiar with yeah. him because... Uh, so Jen and I both grew up kind of in the bluegrass folk music community. And I'm a fiddle Perfect. player first. And uh, so sort of the, the main fiddle player, the most famous fiddle player... Is Mark O'Connor. He's the most influential and he's really big in Nashville. And he has this great album um called New Nashville Cats. When he was kind of at the height of his career in Nashville, he was on everybody's albums. This is in the nineties. He was the the yeah. you know, top tier session player. And uh Victor Wooten appeared on that album. So that's how I was first exposed to Victor. He was on a few tracks and it was awesome. And then Bella Fleck is a great banjo player. Um who's kind of the top tier banjo player. And he has done a bunch of stuff with Victor's done some albums and tours. And so I was definitely like very aware of, of Victor and just what a great genius player he is. And those guys just
0: really expand the boundaries of music in my Mm -hmm. mind. Like they're pushing it, and it's it's so expansive. Like it's you can hear the jazz influence. You can hear all these different influences coming into it, and it's masterful. That's I I mean that's exactly Michael. That's exactly how (laughs) Mm -hmm. I came to discover him as well. So we're yeah we were both raised in that bluegrass scene, but those guys kind of came in, turned heads, and yeah, uh, that's awesome. Infiltrated, yeah, (laughs) in a
2: good way.
3: It, the, their whole family, like I've, I've been lucky enough to, to spend a good amount of time and I've took taken a few lessons with Reggie and Roy, his brothers, and uh, it's just a different level of of understanding music and the spirituality of music, you could say. And um, yeah, if, if I could recommend one thing to any musician, it would be to go to Victor's camp and, and just be there and experience it because it's unlike anything. You could, uh, that you could. It's unlike any other learning process that you could have as a musician, I think.
1: And it's just so so energizing to be surrounded by other musicians, like great musicians, passionate musicians. Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah, that's the thing. Everybody is, everybody that goes to those camps, it's like sixty people or so, and they're all on your side. And there's nothing quite like that feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the Tolkien. like moots are like that too, mm. right? Where everybody's kind of going for the same purpose, and uh, it's really cool. to have I'm that dying
0: feeling. to go. I've never been to one, but Michael—I mean, Michael and I have talked about trying to go yeah. to some virtual ones, but we're hoping they resume in person soon. So you'll yeah. have to loop us in if you hear about anything. i I've,
3: i know that I know that Oxen Moot is hybrid this year, um, okay. so you can go in person and online. And uh, I know that the PPP just had their moot, right? Um, right, and they're going to be working on hopefully an in-person one this coming year. So yeah, that's gonna yeah, be I really want
1: to do an in-person one because I, I do, you know, Zoom meetings all day, and I'm I, <laughs> a, part of the a huge part of the fun of going to a moot and, and ex- experiencing what you described is is being surrounded, I think, physically by by those people yeah, and by those other people yeah
0: yeah by the people by the energy and especially you know tolkien fans their energy right. um speaking of which we want to ask you how you discovered tolkien how did you come to to discover his works
3: that's a, a fun question actually um do we know the Phil dragish unofficial oh yeah <laughs> record uh, versions of the
1: audiobooks I've listened Jen have have you listened to that did I share that one with you
0: you i haven't listened i've been meaning to it's on my to do
1: can you even f- listen to it anymore or has it been pulled down totally uh, i have it i'll say um
3: i that was actually before i read the books i had seen the movies but i hadn't really like fully taken it in yet it's almost like when you a lot of us like when we think of our first time seeing star wars let's say Mm-hmm. Like do, a lot of us don't necessarily remember that it's just like is part of your <laughs> uh, like understanding almost like you just know of it already. So I don't remember the first time seeing the movies, but I do remember finding those audiobooks, And that was my first real uh, adventure through the books. And he's got sound design and music from Howard Shore in there and stuff. And so that was my first real kind of exposure to the books And, um, and then, yeah, it kind of died down a little bit for a little while in terms of the books. The movies were still, um, a big thing, but the books were a little less. And then I started Mm -hmm. listening to the PPP and then it just ramped way back up again. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Phil is somebody that I, I, I want to get on the podcast at some point because I, I just loved, he did such an exceptional job with it. Well, I have a
3: few quick side notes for you if you're interested (laughs) So if, I I think you said that uh, I I listened to, or sorry, you said that you listened to the Council of Elrond, right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
3: So I did a fully immersive version of the Council of Elrond, and that was for the PPP Mood, actually. And it was the full chapter. It was like an hour and 45 minutes long. Um, We got like at least 20 different voice actors in to play all these different parts. And I scored it myself. Added all the sound effects and sound design to it. and uh, But the side note here is that Phil was Tom Bombadil. That's and, awesome. Oh, uh, he came back and, and did that. Because his Tom <laughs> Bombadil is the best version yeah. Yeah. that I've ever heard. It's the only version that I accept as Tom Bombadil. I'll
0: say. <laughs> There's um, so few out there is the funny thing. I
1: know. Oh, right. yeah. I mean, yeah. every adaptation always cuts Tom Bombadil out and Such or, you a know shame. Per, perhaps understandably but it, you know you still it's miss it they haven't
3: heard phil do
1: tom bombadil there you go right <laughs> but uh,
3: but yeah that's that's part of my soundscape episodes that I release on my podcast but if you like phil's stuff he uh, actually read a few parts for one of my soundscape episodes before that which was the coming of Tour to ulmo and he played Tour and ulmo uh, in that fall of gondolin um Reading, which was just so well done. Nice. He's actually working on a immersive audiobook of the Jungle Book. So, oh wow, that's going to be awesome. amazing.
1: That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Anyways, huge tangent, but uh, yeah, Phil now is I awesome.
0: Love it. <laughs> so well, now I must listen.
1: So you're a musician. Tolkien's works has tons of music in it, um, or at least references to music and and song and the power of song and the creative or sub creative power of song. So. You must have thought about this at some point. Who is your favorite character from the whole legendarium that is a musician, or the, who that that plays music, or sings, or something like that? You <laughs> must have something. It's in a mind. it's
3: a solid tie. It's a solid tie. I'll say between Tom Bombadil and Treebeard; those mm-hmm. are my two favorites.
1: Nice, sure. definitely
0: yeah. two very lyrical beings, like yeah. just extremely uh, gift. Gift for gab, gift for words, for sure. Yeah, Good choices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I, I, a small tangent, I guess, but part of the reason why I like those two characters lends itself to the music and to Howard Shore and all of the what we're talking about, which is that those chapters, even though a lot of people um, may not be the be- the biggest fans of those chapters, I guess you could say, um, I like them the most because they force you to slow down and they force you to enjoy the journey. And that's what the music is all about anyways, right? You don't listen to a piece of music to get to the end. You listen to it for the sake of listening to it, which is I think what the Tom Bombadil and Treebeard chapters are mostly for. It's for you to, to sit there in the story and enjoy being there and not worry about you know, the next plot point,
1: basically. Right. So. So th- those those two chapters in particular, and there are a lot of elements of the stories that make me feel this way, but those two in particular are what make me think: boy, Lord of the Rings would be a great, um, would be wonderful as an, a series rather than a film or a series of films, mm. because right. um, you know a movie kind of demands. contemporary cinema requires a three-act structure and so these kinds of digressions you know like tom bombadil in particular which doesn't really tie in directly to the um, active plot can't really afford to do that um but in a in a television series you can have a whole episode devoted to a digression um and it's not that tom bombadil and that whole series sequence is irrelevant to Frodo's character there's all kinds of interesting things that that you discover through, through that, mm-hmm. um, episode, but Definitely. you really don't have time for it in a movie. Whereas in a TV series, you could sit down and enjoy it.
3: Yeah. You could, you could sit there and just be there for the sake of the journey. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think you're right for sure that that would be an interesting outlet. I, I wonder if it'll ever happen, if we'll ever get a thorough kind of, um, step-by-step
1: reiteration of the story like that i would bet that someday we will i mean hollywood loves remakes i'm frankly surprised mm-hmm. that we haven't had a remake yet of of uh, lord <laughs> of the rings i think the only reason is because of uh, the tolkien estate stewardship and and careful you know protective uh, approach to the material but amazon yeah. has the rights from what i understand to make whatever series they want um yeah not covering the Silmarillion, of course, but they could make a series out of the, the Lord of the Rings if they want. So maybe someday in the future, they'll exercise that right and put it together. You can only yeah.
0: hope and pray. Hope yeah. and pray. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, speaking well, of the Amazon show, we always like to cover a little bit of news, if there's good news. And I think this week we have some interesting news. Hi, everyone. This is Michael coming to you from the future. As you can hear, we are about to start talking about the news. Now, we normally like to record our episodes a week or so before they're released, so the news is usually still pretty fresh. But for this episode, and actually the next couple of episodes we're doing on the Fellowship of the Ring film, we recorded a few weeks in advance. And then we ended up releasing a couple of previously unplanned episodes, like our episode on the official image that Amazon released. So that pushed things back even further. All that is to say that the news you're about to hear isn't exactly new anymore, because it's now several weeks old. But we figure that our podcast is less about breaking the news and more about discussing it. So we decided to keep it in. Okay, back to the show. We've been dying for plot leaks of some kind, and we don't don't have any confirmed leaks, but um, a Twitter account that we follow pretty closely, Fellowship of the Fans, they tend to get the inside scoop on things. And they tweeted recently a few rumors that you know he put in bold exclusive unconfirmed rumor, so I guess we can't hold him <laughs> to it. But everything yeah. he's tweeted in the past has turned out to be true, so I think these are really interesting, and I wanted to talk about them, um, get you both your theories. Um, the first thing he tweets, and I'll read all three, and then we'll talk about them all. Um, the first is he says an unconfirmed dwarf king falls down a massive mine shaft and has mine shafts topple over him, but then he makes it out with his life and survives. And this all happens in season one. Uh, the second. Uh, rumor is that one of the main final sets and sequences filmed for principal principal photography for season one was in a Numenorian queen throne room. And mm-hmm. the third plot rumor is that the character that ac- actor Anthony Scrum plays will volunteer to join the Numenorian army in season one. So these are pretty significant rumors that I think uh, give us a good hint about what they're going to be doing in this first season.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, all all of this, I think, is really <laughs> exciting. We're finally getting some plot leaks. Um, I think the the dwarf king falling down the mine shaft. I mean, I think it. I'm right now. I'm blanking on his name, but I think it's it's got to be the dwarf king who was given, uh, one of the rings of power. Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, sure. Is-
1: uh, does he have? Is he ever named? I don't know.
0: I don't know yeah. that he is named now that I'm thinking of it. That might be why I can't recall.
1: We, I think the only dwarf that we get a name for in the Second Age is, um, and I don't remember his name right now, but he's Navi. best friends with Celebrimbor. Uh, is it Narvi? Navi? Navi? yeah. Narvi who,
0: or Navi, yeah. yeah
1: who uh, built the doors of, of Moria with Celebrimbor. It makes me a little worried that, oh, is there going to be some weird, obnoxious CG-heavy scene where he falls down a massive mineshaft? I mean, this I'm getting flashbacks of The Hobbit, and all the kind of ridiculous things that happened once they got to the lonely mountain um I, i'm hoping it's not that but you know i
3: th- i don't think that uh well first of all i'm not really worried about anything uh, i think that it'll either be amazing or it won't be for us you could say, sure sure um which that i is think
0: such a diplomatic outlook <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's just it's i think it's just how it's gonna work out and that stuff from the hobbit was um, a result of circumstance, not mm-hmm. because we wanted it that way. So I, I don't think that there's any concern about that. I th- If it were me, I would hope that I would almost hope that they're making completely new, untouched storylines. Mm-hmm. That way it's it's completely removed from what we know in quotation marks. Um, so that you can either take it if you think it's cool or if you don't, then it's not a adaptation of something you already know. So right. you can just leave it, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and whatever they do with the show, it's there's going to be a tremendous amount of new material in there because even if they're adapting what we know, quote unquote, about the second yeah. age, we only get that mostly in sketches and timelines in the broadest sense. Yeah. So the, That's you know, right. even if they try to adapt that timeline, they have to fill in all those gaps with narrative anyway. Yeah, that's true. Um, So one thing that comes to mind with this leak that they have a Numenorian queen throne room. So Mm -hmm. we have been doing a series on Aldarion and Arendis, uh, the Mariner's wife, which is the only finished, well, it's not finished all the way, but it's the only long form narrative um, that we get from the second age. And so my first thought was, oh, my gosh, you know, they are going to adapt Aldarion and Arendis and it's going to end with Ancalame on the throne. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that's wrong. I don't think think, that's wrong. And I I think actually too
0: early, maybe. You think it's just too early? I think
1: Eldarion Arendis is too early. I think that what these leaks mean is that I think the queen is going to be the second queen um, of Numenor, uh, Tar Telperion, who is the queen at the time that the rings are forged.
0: That makes sense.
1: And we know that she has to be a character at some point. I didn't think it was going to be in season one, but the reason why I think that this queen has to be Tartel Perian in season one is because the next rumor that Anthony Scrum is going to be playing a volunteer that's joining the Numenorian, Numenorian army in season one. So there was no Numenorian army, or at least none that's mentioned when Aldarian and Arendis uh, is going on and when and Calame becomes queen. You know, it's only Aldarian and Gilgalad start forming an alliance. Um, so maybe there's some development in terms of f- forming an army, but then Ankalame abandons all those efforts. So I think what this means is Tartelperion is gonna be uh, a featured queen in season one that builds up and builds up an army, or rather, she doesn't build up an army. Actually, that's wrong. Her son, when he becomes king, because Tartelperion refuses to get involved, but then her son, Tar Minister, gets very involved, and builds up the army. And so she I-
0: says, build me yeah. an army worthy of <laughs> Mordor. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think time, timeline-wise, that totally makes sense. That totally tracks. Um, as much as I want to see the Mariner's wife and I want to see En we may still get them you know, at some point, but, but I think it makes a lot more sense that the person who'd be on the throne is going to correspond with what's going on in Middle-earth, which is the rings are being forged. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be our main storyline.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping that it would be a slow roll and they'd get to that a lot later, but, eh, you know, it's understandable. They would try and get to the rings right away, I suppose. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That does make sense as the, as the general arc for the first season, I guess.
0: Definitely. Well, fellas, should we dive into the Fellowship of the Ring?
1: It's time. And we've, <laughs> it we've been waiting for this for for a while. We've been just kind of cutting our teeth on all this other material, you know, getting our feet wet with this podcast. <laughs> this is the, the real stuff here. Nice. So we're, we're covering the extended edition, but we will talk about the theatrical edition, the things that are different, because I think that those choices uh, are interesting to talk about because they're, they are artistic choices, Sometimes they're artistic choices. Sometimes they're probably choices of necessity. But I think that talking about yeah. them um, is a good way to just sort of explore explore what the, Tolkien meant to do and what Tolkien wanted, and uh, how that can be accomplished on screen. So, the Fellowship of the Ring starts with a voiceover by Kate Blanchett, who narrates the story of the history of the Ring, starting with the forging of the Rings of Power, through the defeat of Sauron by the Last Alliance, Isildur's death, and loss of the Ring. And ending with Bilbo finding the ring in Tom's cave. And I have to say, I think that this is by far the most effective use of prologue in a movie that I have ever seen.
0: Abso-freaking-lutely. It's so good. It's so perfect. And, you know, I think I heard them talking about this in the director's commentary that they... Thought about um, how do we, how are we going to present this? And they went back and forth and back and forth. Should we do a prologue? Should we not? And what they ultimately landed on was that they needed to do a prologue for a few reasons. One was to establish Sauron as you know a big, the big bad guy, the baddie and and really show why he was such a threat to Middle-earth. And secondly, they thought it would be very clever to do this almost from the perspective of the ring. What's the ring's perspective? The ring mm. is an active character, as you'll see throughout this film. Um, and I think it was so effective in, you know, setting the stage, establishing the villain, and bringing us, drawing us into this world right off the bat.
3: Yeah. And I think that it it also sets the... The tone in a way that, you know, for anyone that's skeptical, it's basically saying, we're going to take this seriously and the characters take it seriously. Like there's no Monty Python feel mm-hmm. at all here. It's where we mean business and it's all very serious because it starts off. I don't know how long the the prologue is, but it's a decent length mm-hmm. and it's all very dark and gritty kind of um intense and Howard Shore (laughs) helps make that feel. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's it's not in it doesn't do any like winks to the camera like a Marvel movie would you know oh totally no it
0: manages to not be campy at all it's not campy and striking that balance is so difficult and somehow they did it I think we're gonna keep coming back to how they did that and the mechanisms they use but that's a really good point Jordan like thank you for mm-hmm. mentioning that because that's one of my favorite things about it is is that um, it's just so effective and it's so realistic in a way that yeah. so few movies of, of this nature are able to achieve.
1: Yeah, I remember yeah. sitting in the theater and just the opening shot, I mean, you hear this sort of um, creepy, melancholy, The ring, I don't know if it's called the ring theme, but it's like, you know, this theme creeps in, you hear elvish, it's the first dialogue you hear is, is whispered elvish voices. And then this... This text that they created slowly comes in, the Lord of the Rings, you know, and of course, Cate Blanchett is talking this whole time. And it's like, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is going to be good. You know, just the way they crept into that tone and created that, that, that tone right away.
3: And I think that's something that they talk about. It might've been in the cast commentary where the fact that it starts out in Elvish
1: Mm -hmm.
3: is like just another nod to the audience saying, don't worry we take it seriously. Yeah. We're going to take care um, of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, um, saying, yeah. I was going to say the first, interestingly, the first theme that you actually hear is the Lothlorien theme. And then it kind of is taken over by the ring. Oh, okay. Almost right away. So, and that's just to cue her speaking because it's Galadriel.
1: And so is that the, that's the ring
3: theme, but actually before that, um, there is a little hint of the Lothlorian. Oh, in okay, there. interesting. Um, but I looked through, and there are actually twelve different theme <laughs> hints throughout that whole <laughs> prologue uh, to various, you know, elements of Mordor and the Ring, and to men, and to et cetera, et cetera, Right, et cetera. right. So at least at least twelve in that opening sequence.
1: I have to. So one of the things that I really like about the Fellowship of the Ring, um, Fellowship of the Ring. As a whole, I think is my favorite of the three. It's uh, my favorite. Yeah. I didn't
0: even know it. It's my favorite hands down.
1: Yeah, same. Um, and it's because I think that it made the fewest changes that are offensive. I mean, it, there are some significant changes, but the fewest changes that are offensive. And they made the most changes that are good. And the prologue, it starts off with a massive change. There's no prologue like this in the books. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it... I think it is a good and smart change. Yeah, um, definitely. But I I should give voice to one of the major critics uh, of Jackson and his adaptation is that what he does something he does repeatedly is he will take the sting out of later surprises by hinting at it very strongly a lot earlier. And so like the prologue is a perfect example of that where in the books we learn nothing about the ring for chapters really i mean the ring is there kind of but you especially if you haven't read the hobbit you have no idea that it's of any significance and it takes time and you don't really understand the full history until you get to the council of elrond basically yeah so you're reading several chapters where you're just kind of slowly getting brought into this world and the shire and and Tolkien does that deliberately and jackson takes all that away you know about the ring right away and you learn about the central conflict right away and there's, I understand the argument that that is a significant and poor choice, but I think it is just done so effectively and it's so good to watch. I, I, I'd still love it. That's the thing. Yeah. If it's, I think the payoff that you get
3: cinematically is more worth it than, um, the build up. I mean, it, it could be interesting to put the prologue later, you know, to, to put it like cut it into the council almost mm-hmm. and see what that's like. But I think cinematically starting that way is just so good.
0: I think starting with a lot of action to draw people in, sure. it is also effective. Sometimes it's annoying, but I think what Jackson does so well all throughout is m- the marriage of the action with the contemplative quiet. And who better to deliver this than Kate Blanchett? And I know they played with other narrators. You know, that one point they had, let's have Frodo narrator. Let's have different people. And they were like, wait a second. We should definitely have Galadriel narrator, especially because Elrond mm-hmm. is very present during this time. She sure. would have been present. All these different things. Um, and I know that some of the purists also had, like, crazy gripes. Like, oh, well, the she didn't, Galadriel didn't even say those lines, which is true. Like tree beard technically says a lot of what she says in the prologue. Um, but I, yeah, I just think that a lot of people need context right off the bat in a, in a film, you know, they need some context, they need some action to draw them in. And, um, and yeah, I think this is was such a good choice. And- yeah. The, the first few
1: minutes of a film, it's, that's like prime real estate. You have got to hook your viewer Right away, and that doesn't mean it has to be action. I'm certainly not saying that. you can hook a viewer with all kinds of types of scenes, but you have to hook them and draw them in and you can't um, you can't do fifteen minutes of what feels like prologue, um, you know, hanging out in the shire with you know hobbits. What are these hobbits? We don't know. They're just kind of drinking, you know they're farming and they're drinking and they're boorish like some people get lost in the books. I mean, I don't, I don't really understand it, but some people say, boy, those first few chapters are hard to get through because, you know, I don't really know what's going on.
2: Right. I
3: think that kind of goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, which is that some people are reading it for the plot and some people are reading it for the journey of just, you know, just being there with the story. And going back to what you said before, if it was a show, I think that the prologue doesn't have to be there right you could start off and let it build slowly and that would you know a lot of people say that like shot for shot adaptations don't work but um first of all when's the last time someone tried and second of all um in a show i think it would work really well to almost do exactly what the books do um and you see in the early seasons of game of thrones that that does work yeah. Right. Because the first seasons are pretty much exactly the same. Um, yeah. So I think it could work, but just not as a movie.
0: Such a good point. And the same people who who gave up on Game of Thrones would maybe give up on something like that, but enough people obviously would stick with it and say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this out. That I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> definitely. So there's one there's one thing that's really interesting about the prologue. So. That I want to mention, that I think is really interesting, in the prologue, there's a lot of action right away. You see the the battle of the Last Alliance, um, and you see these massive, massive armies. So, cinematically, that's an effective hook to draw in some of the younger viewers, I suppose. But what I find interesting is that right away we hear we see evidence of the thing that got Peter Jackson to make these movies in the first place. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story. I first heard it. He did an interview with uh, Stephen Colbert and Stephen Colbert, huge Lord of the Rings fan asked him kind of what's the story. How'd you decide to take on this massive, you know, project. And Peter Jackson said that he had done a movie uh, that involved CGI. And as a part of that, he had purchased a bunch of computers and, um, that and this was early, this is early days. I remember Lord of the Rings is you know, uh, turn of the millennium, so 1999 or so was when the first one came out, right? So, um, mm-hmm. the C- the CGI was still pretty early on, and so he bought a bunch of computers, done some kind of cutting edge graphics, I think it was for the Frighteners. But so that movie was done, and he was still paying off the loans for those computers. And he's like, Oh well, my gosh, he's like, Well, I better get some more use out of this, so let's think of, um, a subject matter that will require or benefit from the use of these computers maybe something with a lot of armies and through that thought process they came to the idea of well Lord of the Rings would be a great epic tale that has some of this and and uh, we could you know put these computers to work so yeah it, it, it was kind of like you know economic reality that got him to think in a way that led him to Lord of the Rings
3: right and I I, I don't know if you've ever read the book um anything you can imagine mm-hmm Um, But that is, it's like the appendices for the movies, but like in book form and and way more thorough. And it's an amazing book, but it tells that whole story. A lot of the appendices don't go further back into that kind of area of like, how did it start to, you know, how did the wheels start to roll? But the book talks about that. And he talks about how at one point, I think it was, he, he kind of had the choice almost to pursue Lord of the Rings or um, I think it was Planet of the Apes at that point. Hmm. And he could kind of, he had to kind of t- decide which one he was going to do. Um, so luckily it was yeah, Lord of the Rings. He made a one. good choice. He made a good choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of things. And if you read that book, you'll hear there's a lot of um, interesting scenarios that just kind of happened to work out in a way that led to the movies being made basically Um, a lot of interesting coincidences like that, that just happened. And, uh, and, and we could get, we probably don't want to get into this, but that's another reason why the Hobbit movies, I think happened the way that they happened because Peter has, you know, an industry that he has to feed basically. Mm -hmm. And so does he tank the Hobbit movies and take that away from them? Or does he kind of swallow it and
1: do his best? Right. When he had to take it over last minute when uh, the other exactly. thing. Yeah, pulled Yeah, the out. time
0: crunch alone. If you think about it, I mean, it took them years, years and years of planning for this film alone, you know, to mm-hmm. build the sets, to plan it out. And the thought when you watch some of the appendices and the behind the scenes, the thought that went into making this film yeah. the forethought the staging you know he built these sets and he walked through them himself and staged it exactly the way the actors would do so he could experiment with camera angles and get it perfect and and like it was such a gift to the actors for him to do that but also obviously to the audience and mm-hmm. that kind of preparation that takes years and years just couldn't happen for the hobbit films from what i understand yeah. and yeah. i think you're right in that they suffered tremendously. Um, due to that that very reason
3: yeah and I'll, I'll always say that it's not because of him that they're the way that they are mm-hmm. i think that uh they could have been amazing but because of the scenario they he was put into a scenario that he just couldn't you know he couldn't plan he couldn't do what he would have done to make it a good movie basically
0: We'll probably have to bring you along when we do the Hobbit films. Mm -hmm. We will do the Hobbit films.
1: And I'm actually excited to do the Hobbit films. Jen, I know you're kind of, you've expressed you're dreading it a little bit because they're obviously not as good. I'm going
0: to be, yeah, I'm going to have to have a few cocktails in me to get through them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're a fun time though. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes it a more, the fact that they are not quite as good makes it more interesting to talk about from an evaluative Mm -hmm. perspective. So uh, I'm kind of excited. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe I'm just a glutton for yeah. punishment. But, I, I, mean, I don't know. The
0: thing for me is that this, this film and the Lord of the Rings films are magic. It was the right yeah. ingredients for everything. And for me, so much of it comes down to the script. I'm a big language person, script person. And, but it was the same script writers for The Hobbit is the confusing part, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, you know, the combination of Fran Walsh. With Philippa, 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 Philippa Boyan, yeah. and obviously Peter Jackson, those three coming together, putting their heads together and coming, these scripts, the scripts are just beautiful. The end result is just yeah, so masterful. Having,
3: having the time to come together. Yeah. Having and the time uh, to come together. And, yeah. and actually do it properly, right?
1: Because they did so yeah. many rewrites and they were constantly changing the script. Like on shoot days. Yeah. 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 And, yeah during the shoot. You know, adapting, Tolkien's Prose is so great on its own, and the task of tweaking it, if necessary, would be so daunting and terrifying. And I think that I think they did a good job of it for the most part. I mean, there there are instances, um, and we'll probably try and call them out when they happen, where they take the actual text and they tweak it grammatically just a little bit. And you could, you know, maybe a purist would say you don't touch it; you just leave it exactly as is. But there are some instances where. For the pacing of the spoken word um, as depicted on screen, it I think it might work a little better, not to say that it's mm, better definitely. than Tolkien, but it's you know Tolkien's writing something. And it's a piece of literature. it's in a literary form. Sometimes it needs to be tweaked a little bit to come across and yeah. accomplish the same thing cinematically.
3: And I think that something that I've learned from listening to the the prancing Point podcast and and just diving into Tolkien a little bit more is that. You know, the amount of revisions that Tolkien himself did um, mm-hmm. on his own work, you know, it's allowed to be better than what he had. And that's all I, I, I think that's all I want to say is that, How you know, it's, dare it's allowed- you know. And, and I think that, I think that, you know, people have that attitude and that's fine, but uh, that's all I think is that sometimes it's allowed to be better.
0: Yeah. So. It's, it's, it's going to inherently be very, very different. It's a different medium. Um, yeah. And that's something we're thinking about during this whole discussion is, is this effective considering that it is a different medium from the books? Yeah. It is, it is yeah. film. And with film, for me, what I look for in a film, and I heard this voiced by, you know, I think it was one of the, one of the script writers was you have to keep certain things in mind when you're writing a film. And they, they used um, sort of these metrics to decide to keep things, what to keep in and what to toss. And one was, yeah. you know, does it further the plot? two another criteria does it deepen our understanding of the character you know and and three is it true to the is it does it retain some kernel of truth some uh semblance of um fidelity to the original so yeah. those are kind of the criteria that i always am keeping in mind and i think you yeah. can answer yes to all three with this yeah. movie
3: and the and i know that the maybe a fourth criteria that they definitely had to follow when it came time to start cutting stuff was um, was it Frodo-centric is what they said. Mm. You know, is it is it about Frodo? Because if it's not, then it gets second tier to what they're trying to do. Right? So in the end, if it was a choice between keeping something and getting rid of it, if it wasn't Frodo-centric, then it would have to go.
0: Mm. Right. He is, the, he, he is the hero of the story and and that, or at least yeah, the central
1: protagonist. Sense.
0: The central protagonist of this. <laughs> yes, yes. So <laughs> we could, yeah. Definitely. So, well, funny. I, I <laughs> were you going to move us to the next scene? Well, I was. Well, I
1: was uh, we're still in the prologue. We always do this. <laughs> but <laughs> no, one know. last thing before we move on from the prologue, and this is kind of a PPP type of question. Back at the title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back at the title card. <laughs> so, well, I I am moving to the end of the prologue. No, actually, not the end. The death of Sauron. Okay, the death okay. of Sauron.
0: We do have to talk about it. It is different.
1: It is different. And I did not realize this when I um, watched the film when I was a kid. I didn't catch on to the, the difference. But of course, in the books, um, Sauron is killed by Gilgalad and Elendil, and Isildur cuts the ring from his you know, lifeless body. Um, in the movie, of course, that doesn't happen. We don't really see Gilgalad. Fine. I understand why they did that, I suppose. Um, oh, I guess we technically do because he's one of the three. Um Elden Lords who gets a ring, but it's just in you know a brief shot. But um, Sauron kills Elendil and is fine. And then Isildur just kind of luckily takes a swipe and cuts off the ring, and it was the cutting off of the ring that killed him, which is not really how the ring worked. Um at least I don't think it's how the ring worked. So I I don't know if this really this is might be just something where it's like I'm being too much of a stickler. Um, but I think it's kind of significant in, in how it, what it tells the audience about the nature of the ring um, and the way it works, because that's not really how the ring worked. I don't know. Does this does this bother you guys at all?
0: I think it didn't bother me. I see what you're saying and it's making me think about that. Um, and I think you are right to an extent that the ring, again, the ring is a character, <laughs> a, a very large character in and of itself. But I do think um, action wise, it's, uh, it's effective and it's enjoyable to watch. And again, it's like a it's a really cool visual moment when he cuts down Sauron, this mm-hmm. you know the evil villain. And uh, I, yeah, again, I think it's really great for a film adaptation to do that. Yeah, I it think was enjoyable it, to watch.
3: I think you can make the same argument as to why they would do that when you think about why Faramir is different. Hmm. You know, like it just it makes the ring feel like it matters more right uh, to people that don't know that you're supposed to be like oh this is a big deal um i just think that that kind of crystallizes that idea really solidly
1: to yeah. a, a new viewer kind of in yeah. one shot you know he, he loses yeah. the ring he's dead and it's like oh okay yeah. that's important and it con- the contrary you know what happens in the books I mean, kind of undermines that concept it's like oh you could the ring is so powerful and allows Sauron to take over the world, but he still got killed by two guys, you know? Uh. (laughs) So I don't know.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, uh, what Jen said, like visually, it, it works really well. And, you know, keeping in mind the, the length of the prologue, we gotta, we gotta move on at some point. So, you know, having that in one shot versus a whole sequence is, um, a lot more efficient, <laughs> right? Yes, right,
0: definitely. And speaking of moving on,
3: nope.
1: <laughs> one more thing. One more thing. <laughs>
0: Sorry,
1: I in the go next ahead. frame. Go ahead. <laughs> well, one thing—the one thing they cut out of the prologue because I was watching. I watched both the extended and the theatrical to see what they changed, and I was watching the prologue. And I'm like, oh, everything's the exact same, and I was like, that makes sense because this prologue is so dang good. You wouldn't take anything out. But the one thing they did take out is after Zildar takes Zildar takes the ring and he gets attacked. Um, in the extended, it shows him you know, having a moment where they're being attacked and he needs to escape. He puts the ring on, goes into the water, and Cape uh, Blanchett says, but the ring betrayed Isildur, and you see it come off his finger, and then he dies. In the theatrical edition, they cut that out. So all you see is Isildur riding on his horse with the ring, and then Cape Blanchett says, but the ring betrayed Isildur, to his death or whatever. And and then you see him floating in the river. So you don't really understand what happened or how it betrayed him. That's interesting. I think it's much better in the theatrical or sorry, in the extended edition, that cut is significant and makes, makes it a little nonsensical or at least hard to follow.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we don't really understand at that point, like what the ring is, what it does enough. You know, so yeah, that would have been... I think they should have left that in. Then again, you know, I'm a huge fan of the extended version in all three. Yeah,
1: yeah. So moving on, not to extend this any longer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to come now to... Uh, The most famous of Hobbits, Bilbo Baggins. So we're moving on to the section called Concerning Hobbits. So after the prologue, we hear the Shire theme, my favorite, favorite theme and region in the entire legendarium. So we hear the musical Shire theme come in and the camera pans over some maps, some wonderful maps, important. And we hear Bilbo's voice as he starts writing the very story we're about to watch in the Red Book of Westmarch. So this sequence of scenes, which is actually not in the theatrical version at all, this entire thing is scrapped from the theatrical version, is called Concerning Hobbits, you know, and it is a whole chapter in the books. So it is another voiceover narration where Bilbo introduces us to the Shire and Hobbits, and this basically covers what is actually the prologue in the books. And And I um, love it so much. It's delightful. It's delightful. And what I like about it is it just fully immerses you in this hobbit world we come to really get this um rounded view well-rounded view of hobbit culture so we get sam gardening and that's what he does and nowhere else do we mm-hmm. ever see sam really gardening right, right, in right. entire <laughs> right film and we see you know the hobbits going about their daily life and interacting and enjoying good food and drink and what they're all about and they're their parties and their, I just, yeah, I just love it. The whole thing is so delightful.
3: That, that sequence might be the reason why I watch this one the most often, but um, I was going to maybe summarize a little bit of my thoughts on that intro, which is interesting because we start off with the prologue, which is super fast cut, super uh, kind of intense audio and music, right? There's, like I said, more than 12 themes you know, it's kind of chaotic, you could say. And then it switches, especially in the extended version, it switches to that kind of slow shot of the maps, right, with the one theme over top of it. And it just kind of like, totally switches the gears um, really drastically there, Mm -hmm. and just slows everything back down. And I think that at that point, you've gotten this intense prologue and stuff. And it's really like a crazy start to the movie and then it just slows right down right and says okay let's chill and let's let's see what this world is like now
0: yeah it's an amazing juxtaposition and um and also like you can finally it's like everybody exhales like oh because the the intro is so intense that it's really nice to then have that moment to to kind of see something completely different and take a breath
3: and there's a there's a leading up to that musically, there's a lot of kind of dissonance and clashing that's happening. And then it kind of, it relaxes out and then just like a D major chord comes up and it's just, ah, we can, we can feel nice now. And the, you know, the color palette changes and everything like that. And it just instantly feels warm. And I think that the music is a significant cue for the viewer to say that's done now. And uh, we're on to nice things now for a bit. <laughs>
1: yeah. And the thing I love about the the Shire theme um, is it is happy and it's warm and it feels like home. But I was trying to put my finger on it. It's not just that it feels like home. It feels like the memory of home, you know, like remembering being home. So, you know, the hobbits are fun and playful and there are playful themes that get, you know, plunked in the middle of the Shire theme, you know, here and there. But then it always comes back to this kind of, It's got a little bit of like sweet sadness underneath it somehow. Right. And I love that. There's,
3: there's three. um, Well, there's more than three Shire themes. I think I had seven episodes of Shire themes, but there's three. Yeah. There's, and some of them are just like the, the quick staccato notes that happen. Yeah. But there's three main instrumentations that happen in the intro. And, with what you were talking about, there's kind of the staccato with the solo violin over top of it, which is the kind of happy-go-lucky version that we hear. But every now and then we get the, the whistle version, which is the super melancholy um, feeling one. And I noticed when I watched it, every time the characters were being kind of introspective, I guess you could say, in some way about the Shire, that's the one that played, right, right? Which cues to you like you said, to, to feel that way. And then you contrast that to whenever there's a wide shot of the Shire, it's a full orchestra that plays the, the melody instead of a solo instrument. So you kind of have you know, the happy-go-lucky individual characters and then you have the pensive character version and then you have the entire Shire that's the entire orchestra. Um, so it's kind of cool to see those bounce up and down between each other right and right. Uh, and yeah like you said it i think that one of the big reasons why it feels like that memory of home is first of all because it's on the whistle for that version mm-hmm. and mostly because it has this up, up and down breathing arc to it so it works its way up and then it works its way its way down and it kind of builds in dynamic and decrescendos and dynamic. Um, so it kind of feels circular and brings you back to something that you're familiar with, but it's also just really like that theme does exactly what you would want it to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it resolves exactly how you would want it to. Right. Right. So it feels comfortable. Right. There's no it feels dissonance. Like, okay.
1: There's yeah. Yeah.
3: If you were to listen to the first half, if anyone could ever like and like hear that song for the first time again, it it leads where you want it to and it ends up where you want it to and there's no surprise at the end there right yeah
0: right. it is it really is as a as a major theme of a song it's so evocative and it's so it it really does evoke that sense of nostalgia which is perfect because we're we're seeing where these hobbits come from like we're getting all mm-hmm. these stunning visuals these beautiful landscape we're really seeing where these hobbits come from and have spent their lives and it makes it all the more um all the more telling that they when they take off on this adventure um and we have this in mind how far they are from home and how strange this this world is compared to the the comfort and the warmth and then the nostalgia of their their little hobbiton and uh yeah the music somehow manages to just evoke all of that and it's just
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's my it's definitely my favorite theme
1: wasn't this one of the songs that we played at your wedding? probably yeah
0: probably i'm sure it was i mean we played a bunch (laughs) of them
1: but i think i think this is this might have been the one you walked down the aisle to Uh,
0: no no it wasn't but it it, yeah it was definitely in there it was probably like the. but it could have been
1: yeah (laughs) yes
0: yeah i mean it's an amazing yeah it's amazing so beautiful
1: so there are two things i really like about this this whole sequence and so in my notes i put in that you know it's basically all cut from the theatrical version then i put a Puking emoji because I'm so sad <laughs> that it yeah, got sorry, cut out. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that the prologue in the books is is actually very very important, and all the time that we spend in the Shire is very very important. There's something that's become very common practice now when writing fantasy novels and creating mythologies and uh, fantasy narratives. When you have something that's the hero's journey. The hero has, you have to start the audience at home in a place of comfort, um, that the audience is relatively familiar with and comfortable with. And then you take them from this safe place you take the protagonist, which you feel like is you, you pluck them out of that home-like place and then you throw them into the action. And, um, for Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the Shire, you know, the idea of home can be a lot of different things in the Lord of the Rings, the Shire, that place, um, is that and that's why in the books we spend so much time in the shire learning about the hobbits getting to know their habits and their quirks mm-hmm. and their small-mindedness and but their you know their rustic comfort and all that stuff and you like i want to live in the shire you know i love that place because tolkien yeah. painted it so clearly and yeah this scene uh, or this series of scenes is what creates that in the movie and when it's cut you lose so much of it um yeah and uh you know the hobbits. Hobbits are such important. They're an important guide for us in Middle Earth because there are there are elves which are otherworldly and dwarves, and there's this whole other world with like monsters and stuff, um, and even the men in Middle Earth aren't really like men in uh, are they're not like us. Um, I think yeah. the the people in the story that are like us are the hobbits. You know, they're yeah. they're like Definitely. English people um, rule English people from a certain time period. So. It makes us feel comfortable with the Hobbits. And then as the Hobbits are uh, discovering this broader world, we're ex- discovering this broader world. And they're sort of our touchstone. And um, that's why this prologue, the second prologue, is what it really is, <laughs> does so much work in the movie. And it's it, it's so sad that it gets cut. Yeah. I
3: uh, I know that there's a bit of, I, I guess for the, for the filmmaking team, there was a bit of iffiness on even putting that Bilbo scene in the extended cut, I remember hearing about that. Um, someone was not too sure if they should have that scene with Bilbo in it because it makes Bilbo look a little, like, sinister almost. Because you're that talking about...
0: Yeah, describe what you're talking about. I think I know what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, when he's searching for the ring and he can't find it. Mm -hmm. There's kind of this tense moment that happens and the the music gets all... Right, uh, right. It ramps up in tempo and it gets a little chaotic and then he finds it and then it's all good. But I, I remember hearing that that's one of the scenes that maybe they could have done without... Yeah, and I think that, that
0: makes sense because Actually, agree, we do yeah. get that later. We really get that later when he when we see the struggle to leave the ring behind. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, which it's we'll pretty talk about.
1: clear. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty clear. It does get right. communicated? Yeah, it's kind of a preview of something that we see more forcefully later on, and it, it to to that comment I made earlier, it kind of takes the sting out of that a little bit. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I think that perhaps could have been something that was cut, but um, also the addition and inclusion of that was something that was only made possible by the fact that they included the prologue and introduced the ring first. That's Otherwise true. that wouldn't have even been an option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the second thing I really like about it that I miss is, is all the winks it gives to um, the book readers. Um, you know, it, like you said, it starts out by scrolling over a map. Maps were very important to Tolkien, and there are maps in the book that you flip through when you're starting the book. Um, and then it, you know, it's it's him actually reading the words that are from the book, you know, concerning concerning hobbits, and mm-hmm. he's writing in the red book of Westmarch, which all book readers know the significance of. Um, and so there's all these fun little winks that that book readers, are, you know, Easter eggs that are appreciated by book right. readers, and um, I think they do it. A, effective job also of cutting back and forth between you know Bilbo sitting there and writing the book and, and then the the action in the shire and he goes back and forth and there's all these knocks at the door which sort of sets up Lobelia Baggins later yeah. on Yeah. so oh,
0: I wish we got more of the Sackville I mean I really wish we got more of the Sackville Bagginses just I just <laughs> want to hear them harassing him more yeah, right. I know that you know it it was a, it makes sense that they were cut but I think it would have been really funny. To that's just that
3: another, another thing about your, your discussion about having it as a show. Like you could spend mm-hmm. time doing that kind of stuff. And it would just be, imagine that scene where all the hobbits in the book are, are gossiping at the beginning. Uh-huh. Like it would be so good in, in a show oh, to so just funny. have like, you know, 10 minutes worth of just the hobbits oh, and chatting that's,
1: and gossiping. That's a good point that we kind of glossed over. I mean, The prologue in the movie isn't in the book. What the book starts with is just a bunch of hobbits in a a tavern gossiping about, you know, things that are changing and how Bilbo's, you know, a little wackadoodle. Like, that's how the (laughs) book starts. It's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah. 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 And it's so great. And it's so relatable. Like anyone who's lived in a small town is like, Oh, I've witnessed this. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I also really lament that we don't get, I love this fact that we don't get uh, that hobbits on their birthday, give presents instead Mm. of get presents And that I would have loved to see that. I just, I just love that little uh, tradition and that's not present anywhere. So that's a bummer.
1: Yeah. But some of these things I think are things that we want to see depicted But that I I would concede wouldn't make actually for a better movie, really. I mean.
0: Yeah. It'd be five hours. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right.
3: And that's the thing, though. Like, every Tolkien fan would love it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Probably. And and that's why I think that in the future with a show, there's potential for something probably not exact, but closer to that. Because now we're getting into, you know, the world of of Disney Plus where – you know, Disney is making Star Wars content for Star Wars fans. They're not making it for a general audience necessarily. It's for people that they know will like it because it's Star Wars. Mm. You know, and same thing with Marvel. Marvel made Avengers Endgame banking on the fact that you've seen all the other movies,
2: <laughs>
3: right? And right. it was it did amazingly well because they know now that they ha- like they're so firmly at the top you could say that you kind of have to be aware of all the other movies like you have to be in their world and so it's not for a general audience anymore it's for their audience so if we got to there with tolkien you could do something like that where you know it doesn't matter what the general audience is because this is for the actual fans and so we don't have to worry about any of that anymore
1: see I jen there. i told you that the marvel model is the way to go
0: but i never said i had issues with the marvel model
1: you just have not issues my, with marvel
0: issues. <laughs> but it's the
3: same it, it's the same model that they had in the 60s though and moving forward like with the comics they're 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 doing exactly what the comics did mm-hmm. Yep. you know yeah 60 years ago and it's working just as well right and and like you know You can like the marvel movies or not but if you're in it you're in it completely Mm -hmm. and it's a great time if you're in it you know what i mean and it's the same thing with that it would have been with the comics right like if you're in it fully then you get so much more out of it
1: right and what makes that work so well i think is that they're able to tell smaller stories in fullness, you know, you have a standalone Incredible Hulk movie or a Thor movie, and you tell that story in its fullness, and then you have all these little stories that, that are great stories on their own, and then they can combine into the larger mythos and um so you don't have to try and tackle everything all in one movie like the exactly like the so it gives things a chance to breathe yeah exactly and
0: except that well no i'm (laughs) (laughs) don't i'm I'm bringing it on i'm ready (laughs) i feel like this could be a pile on if i even (laughs) open my mouth you're outnumbered here (laughs) i know (laughs) there'll be another episode when i talk (laughs) about my issues with marvel um but
3: to your point, though, about um, uh, about giving things that are for the book readers, um, I think that that is something that I'll say one last thing about Marvel. Um, with Endgame and moving forward, we've uh, we've gotten to the point now where we don't have to say, "Hey, audience, this is a thing we're referencing," hmm. right? We can right, just reference right. it, and, and you don't have to point out that you're referencing it. And Star Wars is at that point now, too, where none of it's a big deal. You know, when you saw, if you saw Force Awakens, it was like, hey, everybody, it's the Millennium Falcon. Do we get it? <laughs> it's the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> right, right. But now that we've moved past that point, they just put those things in there because they know the fans will get them and they don't have to point them out, which is what Peter Jackson did with the intro of this story, right? They just, sure you know, sure. you either get it or you don't get it. It's not like, hey, audience these are the maps from the books. Let's make sure that you know that, (laughs) you know, they don't have to kind of self-aware point out that. And I do see that the early Marvel movies do that. You know, they, they try to nod to the audience and say, Hey Mm -hmm. audience, (laughs) you're
1: supposed to get this right now. Those nods are a lot more subtle because the audience is more sophisticated in terms of understanding what's going on in that universe. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I
3: think that Marvel is trusting themselves more, to just go for it
0: i i actually think we're there with tolkien or we could be there i think the thing that's really prohibitive is like what michael was talking about earlier is that the tolkien estate is very strict about who about the rights and who can make what but you know we we're gonna see a lot more content obviously that amazon yeah, will be
3: putting pe- people at. are so. people are well i say people but i only see the the fan, Tolkien fan side Mm -hmm. of it. So I don't know what the general public thinks of it. They probably don't even know. But, um, you know, I've seen a lot of people that are nervous that it's going to franchise like Marvel and like Star Wars is. And, you know, my response to that would be like, bring it on as
1: much content as we can get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because then at the end of the day, I mean, the books are the books and, you know, they're not going to you know, I can always go back and read the books. You're not going to change that for me. If you, if you make a bad yeah. version or something that I think is bad, it doesn't work for me. I don't have to watch it. Um, yeah. and you know,
3: one, one thing that I always, you know, we were talking about the the series earlier and one thing that I, I refrain from commenting on any post that I see about it. Cause I just can't be bothered to, <laughs> to have that conversation, but I wish that those people that are super nervous, or are you know, any post they're like, How could they do this? Blah blah blah. I wish that those people could m- maybe just take a second to think about how there's hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of people working on this project that care. And right. if they don't care directly about Tolkien, then they care about making something that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just like a bunch of random people together that you know, oh, we got to do this Lord of the Rings thing, you know, and go home after work. Right. It's people that care about it. Um, And they may not care as much as we do about the books personally, but they care about being, you know, a good team and creating something that's good. Right. So until we see a frame of of footage that shows that it's bad, I'm positive it'll be good. Right. You know, until we actually see something that, Is anything. That's the thing. We haven't seen anything. So, yeah, literally nothing. I'm starving. It might as well be good.
0: (laughs) We've talked a lot about this topic and and our hopes for the show, and we we both remain optimistic until proven otherwise, you know?
1: Yeah. And like you said, the books will always be there. So, So, um, the next sequence is where the theatrical movie starts after the prologue, and that's with Frodo sitting under a tree reading a book, and he hears. Gandalf bouncing down the lane, um, singing The the Road Goes Ever On and On. And uh, he runs up to meet him and they have a nice conversation. And this is a kind of a great little meet-cute. I love the the exchange that they have. Um, I think it's a really fun way to introduce Gandalf.
3: One thing that I was thinking about when I was watching it this time was maybe two things. One thing is that I think that everyone should listen to the movie with headphones on at some point. Because it's really interesting. Um, There's a lot of small things that you, unless you have a real good setup for your speakers, there's a lot of subtle things that you miss. And, you know, for the longest time, I, like years ago, I didn't even realize that Gandalf was singing there. Because it's hard to hear it if you're, you know, in a, like listening through TV speakers or something like that. It's pretty quiet. Um, So it's cool to listen through headphones. But the other thing that I really noticed with this whole in, um, introduction sequence once we finish the prologue is, and you can watch it again and look for this, is there's kind of waves of music that kind of die, they kind of die down and then there's sound design and dialogue a little bit and mm-hmm. then a wave of music and then back into sound design and then it kind of waves up and down through these uh this song you could say of, you know, here's the Shire theme, and then it dies down, and then you hear the sounds of Gandalf's wagon mm-hmm. and the horse and everything, and then they have a little chat, and then it ramps back up again. And that kind of happens the whole way through this whole introduction. And uh, it's it's a cool thing to think about while you're watching because, you know, those decisions were made to to have a flow in the mm. arc of sound design versus um, um, music. And I have another point about that when we get to the, uh, the party later.
2: Mm.
0: Wow. I have never noticed that, but I have always noticed that the pacing of this film, the pace of this film is perfect in my book. It's, it's so perfect. And I think that contributes to it being totally enjoyable and, and, and moving at a, at a wonderful Pace because it's supported. It's got this undergirth of, of music helping it along and helping um, the whole experience be um, something that's all encompassing, and that makes so much sense. I'm definitely going to listen with headphones next time.
3: Yeah, I read a I read a book by Paul Hirsch, I think, uh, who edited Empire Strikes Back, and he was talking about how movie editors. Consciously, but most of the time unconsciously have like a tempo that they're, they're cutting to that they're cutting these scenes to. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time they're not aware of the tempo, but the composer can kind of cue into that. Mm-hmm. And again, it doesn't have to be like something that they actually discuss, but kind of subconsciously they get a flow with each other where, you know, maybe that scene without music is, Eight bars later, without the music. Eight bars later, it starts up again, mm-hmm. and so that's why it could feel really, really nice. I'd love, I'd love to do an analysis of that actually. Interesting. See how the tempos change Ooh, in the open do. space, right? That would be really cool. I've actually, <laughs> I won't, I won't uh, keep uh, digressing too much here, but I would love to take the movies and mute them, and then put the scores over top of them just the score I thought that would be really cool but there's a lot of music that's in them that's not uh, officially released interesting and uh, yeah that's something that I talked with Doug Adams about actually of how cues were changing like right up until the movie was released and uh, the albums that you can get online are like that due date was before the movie was due so (laughs) there's stuff that changed (laughs) afterwards right you know, and and even in this book, I'm reading um, and you'll you'll look and it'll say, this this music cue happens at this point.
2: Mm.
3: And you'll go to the the soundtrack and listen to it, and you'll be like, "I don't hear it there." And then when you compare it to the movie, it's actually different just because of when that album was released, when those finals had to be done, which is kind of interesting
0: that is so interesting i've never actually noticed that but i do think it's amazing how you hear over and over again that they were working on things right up to the last second and even beyond like that was the same was true for the script and the Mm -hmm. same was true for different shots they were re they were reworking everything always to make it the very best version it could be
3: yeah and uh i love peter's attitude about that that he discusses in the appendices he's said something like you know you have to get the movie there on time but it's okay to get it there just just barely on time you know just right at the last minute
0: (laughs) just right at the last minute yeah (laughs) Yeah, so you work
3: everyone right to the edge and then you you still deliver it on time but
0: (laughs) well a project a project of this magnitude too i mean just doing what he did like people didn't think it could be done you know, and Miramax, we can't forget that Miramax was originally going to make this um, movie, but they put such constraints on him and said, you know, nobody's going to watch three films. We have to make one. And Peter Jackson stuck to his guns and said that it just can't be done. Um, and then thankfully, New Lines said, we want you to give it the time and care and attention it deserves. So we're gonna you know what? You can't do it in two because I forgot, but originally he had said maybe I can do two. And they said, no, you've gotta do three.
1: Yeah, and the the story that Peter Jackson told about that is so funny because he says he goes in there and he and he pitches two because he, he really wants to get these made. So he's like, all right, I can compromise it too. And then they're sitting there and listening and and then at the end of the pitch. Unreadable. This, yeah, unreadable, <laughs> this inscrutable movie executive and he says, uh <laughs> why would you want to do this in, in two movies? You know, you can't do this in two movies. And he's thinking, Oh great. He's just going to tell me one movie, like over at Miramax. And he's, like, You have to do three. And then, you know, Oh, okay. This is the right uh, movie studio to go with. So
3: that's just a really funny. See, there's, there's, that's why that anything you can imagine book is so awesome because it, it, it talks about all of those moments of like scenarios that just happened to work out the way that they needed to for the movie to be made in the way that it is. Um, really, really interesting so to watch good. that journey. Yeah,
0: yeah. we're, gonna, we're definitely going to have to read that. Uh, what I want to talk about in this particular scene, well, two things actually. Number one, I just want to talk about Elijah Wood, the brilliance of Elijah Wood as Frodo. Oh, I mean, God. this guy <laughs> delivered. He is so winsome and so powerful perfect as frodo like the perk i can't think of anybody else he really embodies <sighs> his character i just think i am obsessed with him as frodo i <laughs> you guys I, are laughing at me
1: i, I don't <laughs> Do know about you not agree i am laughing because frodo is my Elijah Wood is my least favorite actor in this. Oh, whole Oh,
0: shut! <laughs> uh, what blasphemy! You shut your mouth.
1: The funny thing is, <laughs> I I really like Elijah Wood, and I don't dis- I've seen other movies he's, he's in. Phenomenal. I like him. Phenomenal. I want to see his movies, but somehow he just doesn't do it for me. In what Lord do you the the not Ring's like about
0: it? I don't know. I so think I, he's perfect. It, I think he's earnest and winsome, and emotive he draws okay. me in i we have the um, he the has opinion.
1: like he has like two faces that he does two emotive what? faces
0: oh my god! he has
1: the you know the sort of sad the smile and then he has the like i i got a knife in my gut or i'm about to puke you know when he's oh like my being gosh, tormented. i Look.
0: totally disagree with you he has such <laughs> range and depth you you. <laughs> this is gonna be I'm being too hard on him. I you know, I've, I've never but heard you say this.
1: I know, I've been saving it. I've been saving it. Well <laughs> and go, a new <laughs> go back yeah. Go back and look okay, at the start of the scene no.
0: when, okay. when I'm Gandalf... gonna challenge you. I'm gonna I'm gonna now take note of how many like how many different screenshots?
1: Every yeah, yeah. different yeah, time. the many faces <laughs> of Elijah Wood.
0: I think he's so dynamic. I don't know what you're talking about. I think he was the perfect casting choice. I stand by that. So the thing- Jordan, would you like to break the tie? Yeah, when- yeah. <laughs> Wade into this uh, <laughs> hot. Debate. I don't know if I should. Um,
3: <laughs> I, I I like Elijah Wood as. as Thank Frodo. you. I, Thank I, you. I um <laughs> I think that there's a there's a quote from a letter from Tolkien where he talks about how, and this is what a lot of people use as their evidence of uh, Sam being the hero, is that I think he says something like, uh, Frodo will be too ennobled by the end of the story to be able to stay. So Mm -hmm. he has to go. And that means Sam will be the one that stays. And I think that Elijah... Of all of the things that he does I think that he portrays his kind of how he's on a different level from the other three really well Mm -hmm. right because it's pretty clear that he's not one of them in that same way he's not as hobbity as them and in the books that is a big thing that he's not he's a lot Mm -hmm. more kind of um, introspective and and Mature, I guess you could right. say than the other hobbits. Right. And I think that he does a good job of, of portraying that. Right.
0: Definitely. And I love seeing his evolution throughout the three films. Like that's another thing that I think he does so well is evolve as a character and show the different emotions that Frodo goes through. You know, every everything from I wish the ring had never come to me. And hearing that in his voice Mm -hmm. and on his face again, while not—it's none of it's—it's never overkill. Like with Elijah Wood, it's never overkill. And with film, like theater, theater actors—you know—you're always told to bring it down. And then if you're in film, bring it way down, make it Mm -hmm. so intimate. And I think he's brilliant at that.
1: You know, this is a movie where the actors are all tens, and Elijah Wood's a nine. So I still, I still like him (laughs) fine, but. There are, there are a few instances where he takes me out of it. I feel like his accent, I can tell it's put on. I don't know about you. I don't think it's like a genuine, like very good. I don't know why he did an accent. Like Sam doesn't do it. Uh, uh, the actor who does Sam, he doesn't really do an accent at all. He does. He does. He, yeah. He, he does. But if, it's, if, so, if it's so Sean different.
3: It's so different. If you hear Sean Astin talk, though, it's it's pretty.
0: It's, yeah. It's affected. Uh, yeah. It's an affect. There's an affect yeah. to his voice. I will give you that his accent isn't perfect. I'll give you that one.
1: Yes. That one. Put it on the board. <laughs> I'll you take get the one. one thing.
0: <laughs> but it's not terrible. I've heard No, it's it. not.
1: It's not terrible. I mean nothing about Elijah Wood's acting is terrible, but uh I just feel like you can he has a face that he repeats in scenes. I'm going to take screenshots of that face, and I'm going to send that to you.
0: Let's, okay. okay. <laughs> Let's see the
3: ratio. Let's yeah. see the ratio. Yeah. <laughs> see,
1: this is, this is going to anyway, be a statistical study of Elijah Wood's faces. This is going
0: to be a hot little debate. Okay, well, the second point I was going to make was that they had to do – this is the very start of the all the crazy um, – hijinks they had to pull with making hobbits yeah, and you know they they used a lot of different camera angles even in this one shot and then they used the stunt double yeah the smaller stunt double with um a very large yeah a very very large tall man right so i'm just thinking of like even though this is such a short scene they had to cut right so many times you know to get it to get this all right i just I can't even imagine how long this would have taken to make yeah. this whole film that way.
1: Because doing a normal film, you have to shoot scenes multiple times from multiple angles with the normal actors. With exactly. these films, that you know, double that, triple that, because you have to do every angle with different sets of actors. Right. right. And
3: that's why... An, an interesting thing for me personally with these movies is I have almost a hard time separating the movie from what I know about the making of the movie because mm. I care so much about the making of it and like the people that made it that like I, I, I'm never on board with any of the flaws that people point out because they just don't matter to me because the it's outshined by the work that was put into it for me. Um, and just with that example that Peter could even handle that is amazing right mm-hmm. like amazing. and there's right. there's stories of him you know shooting a unit and and you know getting footage from two or three other units and like okaying it at the same time and then he'd like get on his bike and ride over to the other set and like do something there and he's doing all of that you know and sleeping like three or four hours every night right the you logistics know, that,
1: of the of the shoot is yeah.
3: just are remarkable
0: it yeah. is the ultimate artistic endeavor
3: Right. And that's what outshines any flaw yeah. for me for right, sure
1: right. Like I see yeah, that absolutely that shot of um, when Frodo jumps into Gandalf's arms in the carriage and then so obviously that's the uh, uh, body double. but yeah Kieran. It, I think it's Kieran Shaw. Okay mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you're right. And then and then they're riding along in the carriage and they just do a force perspective thing where Frodo <laughs> is sitting like a foot behind uh, so Elijah Wood's sitting like a foot behind where Ian McKellen is sitting. And he's looking up, like they figure out where he needs to look in space to make it look like he's actually looking into Ian McKellen's eyes. And I, when I yes. l- learned that that's how they did it, I watched and rewatched and rewatched that scene so many times to see if now that I knew the trick that I could spot it, <laughs> and I still can't spot it. It is flawless.
0: It's visually excellent.
1: I
3: was going to ask you guys this, is there any shot in any of the movies where now that you know how it's done, it takes you out of it. Is there any shot that yes. you're like,
1: ah.
0: Really? For not, me, no.
1: Not Well, not like takes me out of it. I, nothing has really like uh, damaged my enjoyment of the films. But, and it's not a visual shot. It's an audio thing. When huh. I learned that like 98% of the dialogue was actually recorded in a studio and not on set. Oh, and yeah. they just overdubbed yeah, it over the actor's. So like yeah. they were basically doing like voiceover work as if they were you know voicing a cartoon. Yeah. First of all, that blows my mind that they that they did that.
3: Um, yeah. Most movies are that way, 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 way more than you would think. But right. for Lord of the Rings, yeah, it was like a ridiculously high percentage.
1: And for the most part, it's you can't tell. It's it's pretty flawless. But there is a scene, and it's one we're going to be talking about in a second, where you know where Bilbo and Gandalf are talking together in Bag End, oh. and. Their mouths are kind of moving in a funny way that doesn't quite line up with the the dialogue, and i I'd never really thought twice about it before. I thought maybe my eyes just weren't working right, but once I learned that, I realized, oh, that's what's happening there. There's a little bit of a you know asynchronicity between the hmm. the audio and the visual. Interesting.
0: I for me, I think that when I'm watching it, I'm just always so um, engaged, and I'm just so fully. Like in the story, um, that I don't—I'm not always thinking about the more technical aspects. Like when I watch the appendices, I'm thinking about that all of that. Yeah. But um, I think that's the magic of this movie—is it always for me tra- totally transports me to this world, and that's how I always try to watch it. Um, yeah. So I'm less, maybe less analytical, like while I'm watching it, which I think yeah. just speaks to the quality of the movie.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you know especially now with the 4K version of it um there's really no scene that stands out to me that's like ah oh, that could have been that could have been done better you know like the the technique that they used or whatever there's a maybe a few gollum scenes that are you know they show their age a tiny bit but for, their, for
1: the most part, I don't really notice any of that. It's remarkable how well everything has aged in these movies.
0: Oh, yeah. And and you and I have talked about this, uh, Michael. And part of that is because he used, you know, real actors for so mm-hmm. much of so it. So
1: little CGI.
0: So little CGI. Yeah. So <sighs> Yeah, and I think it also goes back to the, the amount of forethought which we talked about earlier. But um, something we didn't mention is that there were like three stages of planning, right? There was like sketching out stills and then sketching mm-hmm. them and then doing them digitally in the computer using Previs or whatever they call it, mm-hmm. and then actually pre-vis. walking through and all this. So it was it was incredibly well fleshed out by the time they actually yeah. like they actually got in there and started turning cameras on. So yeah,
1: yeah. Well, in that scene with. Bilbo and Gandalf when they're in Bag End, like they had, there are lots of examples of this probably throughout filming, but where they had to basically create like a magical table that made uh, Ian Holmes look small and 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 uh, Ian McKellen look large, like you know, literally different heights. And but they would Mm -hmm. just angle the camera in just the right way so that you could see the difference. But and when they would turn the camera, the table would shift and rotate.
3: And, yeah, and, and, those motion control units to make that happen. That's just so genius. But it's also so simple because mm-hmm. it's just simple distance math. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if one camera moves the other, the dolly moves with it or whatever. And so the concept is really simple, but it I think that that's what allows it to age so well. Right. And, um, I, I never see any of the forced perspective shots. Yep. Hey? And even that one that you were just talking about, you can see the table move. Because you can see like half the table move because Ian McKellen hits it with his leg. And so you you see it move, but the far end doesn't move because it's a different table. Um, but even with that, I never really notice it. Like I never am like, oh, yeah, that's the trick right there. Um, I never think about right, that. Right, right.
0: And just, to, yeah, and there were two different sets also. There was like a small, right. very small set. And then a very large set, like a yeah. Hobbit Hole sets. And we're, I mean, to be clear, we're already kind of talking about the scene, very old friends. So we might as well get into that scene. Yeah. Um, so after Frodo jumps off the wagon, Gandalf rows up to Bag End and they have a warm reunion with. Um, with his old friend Bilbo. So he notices how oddly young he looks. He has that moment where he's looking at him and he says, you haven't aged a day. Um, and then they have a discussion during which Bilbo reveals he's actually feeling very old and plans on leaving after his party. So he actually tells Gandalf that he's planning on leaving. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, the thing that always gets me when I see this scene, Michael, do you want to talk about this?
1: Yeah, this, <laughs> this, is, a, your little this rant? is something I put in the notes. It's not a rant. <laughs> Hobbit, do- Hobbit doors are little ridiculous. little
0: soap box. You have another soap box. Hobbit doors are
1: ridiculous. Shocking. They make no sense. No one would ever make a door like this. The physics of, of the amount of well, the leverage. It just makes no sense.
3: Well, I have a, I have a thing though. I have a thing on the doors because I was nice. at the the PPP moot that just happened a couple months ago. Yeah, And there was a guy who did a talk on Hobbit doors and he was an architect guy. So he's got like the design software and everything and like built versions of it. And like he he had a half hour presentation on how you would build it and how it could work and what it would need to work, which Uh is kind of awesome
1: (laughs) to say that. And I mean, I I didn't do any calculus, you know, informing this opinion, but I mean, was it a really complex and kind of involved endeavor to create a door that would swing easily when, you know, you only have when all the leverage is hinged on this like tiny hinge on the side.
3: Yeah. So you would need like really, really intense hinges right, right. Uh, to make that happen. And uh, of, of the whole thing with the doors, having the knob in the center makes no sense. Right. Having the knob on the side would make sense. Right. Or having a handle of some kind on the side makes sense. But uh, if it, I mean, if you look at the doors in Minas Tirith that they actually built, you know, uh, uh, did they build a scale version of it or a full size version of it? I think because so. uh, the horses, yeah. the horses go through it. Right. So right. It was full size, but if it's weighted properly, like they can open with no effort. Hmm. So yeah, I don't well, know how good hobbits are at building their doors,
1: but apparently <laughs> really good, you know, apparently, <laughs> but the interior of the hobbit door. So on the exterior, the, the doorknob is in the middle, which as you said, makes no sense just from a physics perspective, you'd want the handle to be on the end as far you away from the hinge as you could get. <laughs> yes, you can actually push it. Yeah. On the inside, you the handle You guys
0: are in the weeds with this fucking thing. I mean, like come on now.
1: <laughs> on the inside, the handle is uh far away from the hinge. So the the really? the handle on the inside I of the door is not in the that. center. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two different handles. Anyway,
0: I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hobbit doors. No, hobbit holes is a concept like I just love it. Oh, like, me That's too. how the whole mm-hmm. thing begins, right? In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Mm-hmm. And just drawing you into their little world. But I love this scene because it really does, it's so effective at establishing the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. relationship between Bilbo and Gandalf and the, the smoke rings. The smoke rings are at the end of this scene, correct? Right before the party? Right, Correct.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And there was something that I was going to mention here musically, which was, this is one of the few scenes where like the whole score is thematic based, right? Right. There's themes for this themes for that, etc. But this is an example of something that I'm, I'm just going to call emotional coverage, which is, um, you know, colors from the orchestra that are used to paint a certain type of feel instead of a theme that you can hear as a melody, right? There's a few times through the score that Shore does that, where it's not, it's not a theme. It's not something playing off of a theme. It's just, you know, tension and release from the orchestra. Mm-hmm. It happens, it happens at the, the doors of Moria as well. Just, you know, it, there's no theme there. There's no hint at a theme. It's just, emotional cues something that you would get more in like a Hans Zimmer type movie hmm. you know something it's like
0: very Interstellar atmospheric.
3: right like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's kind of cool there's a few moments like that but not very many
1: oh that's yeah that's interesting I, I hadn't thought of that and that is a little more in vogue in i think modern movies or at least I'm thinking like you know yeah every christopher nolan movie it's like they, they, there's no actual musical theme whatsoever throughout those movies it's yeah, just this exactly. like loud you know i mean i love those uh, uh i love the sound behind christopher nolan's movies but it's very different from what we get in this score in this movie
3: mm-hmm. which is a it, it's an interesting thought you know would the score have been made that way if this was made today, Mm -hmm. right? Like would, would a composer have done it that way? And I think it, you know, in the, in the, the appendices shore talks about how he felt like, you know, going on this journey was like him being Frodo, you know, going off on this adventure. And so it's just another one of those scenarios where the right person was chosen that cared enough to actually, you know, go, you know, there's, there's at least a hundred themes and so, you know, he cared, he cared that much to do that. You right. know, he didn't have to do, he didn't have to care that much. He could have put in a quarter of the effort and still had a score.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and he, he not only made one score, he made two scores really, because from what I understand when Peter Jackson approached the release of the extended edition, he had Hans Zimmer go back in, and they re-recorded all the scores so that the themes and everything would line up with the way Peter Jackson had recut things. There's uh, a lot
3: of additional stuff. Yeah. That there's a, How much extra time is there in the extended?
1: Uh, I'm not sure in total. Uh, like exactly. at least a half an it's hour. At least a half hour in the of fellowship, the,
3: yeah. And, and like I said at the beginning, almost all of that time has music. You know, there's like almost no – real big moments that don't have music in right. the movie. So you're right. Yeah. He would have had to come back and rescore scored and not just like add, he would have to rescore it because it would be that cue that he had at the beginning that now fades into a new scene mm-hmm. instead of the other scene that it used to go to. So he'd have to rewrite it, re-record it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: Crazy.
0: So much thought and intention. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's absolutely mind blowing.
1: So um, one of the one of the yeah. things um, I really loved about these scenes, pivoting a little bit, is so this is when we're really introduced to in the theatrical version. This is when we're introduced to Bilbo for the first time, and uh, even in the extended edition, this is when we first see him have actual dialogue because before that, it's just voiceover. Mm-hmm. And we get to see Sir Ian Holm, who is, uh, you know, he was a renowned stage actor, and in my opinion, just a wonderful. Just perfect Bilbo. Um, yes. Him and Martin Freeman were both just awesome casting choices for Bilbo, you know, for an older and younger Bilbo. Just a great job casting isn't it, Bilbo. In,
3: isn't it interesting that they both have the same acting technique where, like Ian Ian McKellen says in the making of, um, Ian Holm would purposefully make each take different so that Peter could choose between them. And that's not very common. And Martin Freeman does that too. Interesting. Which is just really interesting. They both do that exact same. And even in the making of For the Hobbit, um, Ian McKellen again comments on that and says, you know, it's really interesting. I'm not used to working with people that do that. And it's both Bilbo's that that act that way.
0: It's so unique and it's so difficult to do. To that,
1: so to have Bilbo. that amount of range, <laughs> so Bilbo, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so, yeah, Bilbo. yeah, so Bilbo. Because yeah. I would think that as an actor, you would, you know, you would take each take to kind of further refine the direction you're going in, right? You're discovering the character with each take, and and yeah. uh, so it's it's different, but it's different in the sense that you're getting it closer, you're hewing closer to what yeah. you're going for. Um, you're not yeah. trying something mm-hmm. different every time. So to try something yeah, different every would, time, yeah. wow, it takes guts. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: a risk. It's a huge risk, and you also don't know if a, how a director would respond. I mean, clearly, these two, you know they're so seasoned; they they've done it for many years that they're well respected. But
1: yeah, it was a great yeah, that's, nod that's to uh, to Lord of the Rings history too, because uh, Ian Holmes played uh, Frodo Baggins in the BBC adaptation from long mm-hmm. ago, and um, right. he was great in that as well. So it's so cool to have him. He's not reprising his role, but he's appearing again in another adaptation. I'm so glad they yeah, did it's that. like
0: Full circle, so cool. And hadn't Ian McKellen just come off of the, one of the Marvel sets or something?
3: He he was finishing the second X-Men, I think, at that point.
0: Yeah, the second X-Men movie. Yeah. <laughs> like he was, had was fresh off of it. I read somewhere that he was fresh yeah, off right of it and like flew right. in and like went right to work. Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: I good. think it was actually amazing. there was a risk that he early on that he wouldn't be able to do Lord of the Rings because of the potential scheduling conflicts. So mm. I'm obviously very glad that they worked those out. It's something that's really funny. I I love Ian McKellen as Gandalf. He's the perfect Gandalf.
0: So good, so good.
1: But when I went into the theater <laughs> as a kid, everybody walks into the theater if you're a book reader with an image in your head of of what a character looks like or sounds like, right? Mm. And and the way Gandalf is described in the book, he's described as having kind of a, a pointy nose, you know. So I had a, I had a face in my head of Gandalf that was a lot more like um, Christopher Lee that looked – I actually – when I saw Christopher Lee, I was like, oh, that's who should have played Gandalf just in terms of looks. That's what I imagined. Interesting. And, you know, for about – Ten seconds, I was like, "This isn't the right actor to play Gandalf." You know, his nose is not the right shape. And then I got over <laughs> it instantly because Ian McKellen's just amazing. Yeah, that's so funny.
0: That is funny that's because, funny. you know, so, like Sar Saruman Sar- has is supposed to have such sharp features, sharper, and yeah. d- so definitely, I think they were they were very well.
1: Oh yeah, I have no complaints now. But uh, yeah. you know, it's just the phenomenon that's of yeah, yeah. having an yeah. image in your head in advance Definitely, could have been yeah. could have been Sean Connery though
3: <laughs> get out of <laughs> town know. is that true no yeah that is true yeah he was oh, uh gosh. he was he, I think he was the studio's top pick at one point wow
0: no and kidding.
3: they they sent him the script and he was like oh, I don't understand this so the real question the, is can
0: anyone do Sean Connery as Gandalf right. <laughs> that needs to happen we need yeah. an impression
1: yeah jen work that out you're pretty good at impressions okay i'll work it out
0: oh, i'm gonna work on that one um yeah well john reese davies i mean it makes sense weren't they in yeah they were in indiana jones together right
1: oh yeah that's right uh yeah was
3: yeah. that yeah. the same indiana yeah, jones okay you have the third one yeah i think so it's been a while
1: we'll just think so. we'll just pretend that we are.
0: we'll just pretend like it is <laughs> like it's true yeah. the I mean, they're so, these two are very dynamic and we're going to get to their later scene where the farewell Bilbo scene, but mm. that scene, I mean, really highlights just how good these two actors are apart from each other and t- together. Like,
2: mm-hmm. Right. Just
0: right. so much is communicated in such a small, short period of time and they, they play it perfectly, beautifully. Yeah. Um.
1: And I, I got to yeah. say that uh, this scene contains one of the lines that I think is best delivered. I just, I love it so much. Um, where Ian Holmes says the line that he feels like butter scraped over too much bread. Yes. You know, that's a, a metaphor that Tolkien uses. It's one of the most evocative uh, that, that I like the best from the books. And the, Ian Holmes' delivery. Just as kind of gut wrenching, like you really feel it, and the way they shot it, you know, the close up of his hand in his waistcoat pocket where he's kind of fingering the ring, cuts back to Ian McKellen and he kind of sees what's going on, and Ian Holmes, like his voice, he sounds tired, you know, and uh, mm, and then yeah. he, you know, um, I intend to go on a long holiday and I don't expect I'll ever return. In fact, I mean not to. Just that whole line, I love it so much. Yeah so well done
0: and i just love that they could get this this bonding moment smoking the pipe which peter jackson apparently was nervous that they wouldn't let <laughs> him have this and he was ready to go to bat for them smoking their pipes because that is like a huge part of hobbit culture and it really mattered to him and then they were like yeah sure do it we don't care
1: and then they really <laughs> played it up in the two towers
0: yeah yeah, yeah. then they went cut they kind of took it and ran with it yeah um yeah. But it, it leads perfectly, you know, this is going to be a night to remember. Gandalf, my old friend,
2: this will be a night to remember.
0: It's perfectly into the party scene. We just have to talk about the party scene because it's such a jubilant joyful scene Mm -hmm. i just love it apparently it's full of relatives of uh peter jackson i'm sure you guys do that they cast their friends and family as extras can you imagine being an extra in the scene i'm just so jealous how much fun this would be to film
2: yeah
1: well we get the shot of um his daughter who appears in every uh, every film at some point and she's his son like...
0: and daughter son and daughter so I,
1: I i know that that's true but i can't in my head pick out where his son is but i know every scene that his daughter is in because she is like the most cute like so cute elfish like, she looks like a little looking child. oh she's like adorable and so her well, face just stands boys. out in every little shot
0: the little boy is always right next to her and oh, okay. apparently he's the only one who didn't have to have a wig because little Billy's hair just looks like that. Okay. He's the only yeah. person in the entire <laughs> scene that didn't have to have a fake fake hair.
1: That's awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So the the party scene starts. So when I was re-watching all this, I was watching it to like, I was looking for things to comment on, looking for things that were maybe like, obviously interesting. And so we could provide some serious commentary, but maybe also some goofy things. And one thing that I noticed when... <clears throat> At the start of the party scene, um, so Elijah Wood is in like one of the first shots. You know, there's all this music and then there's dancing. And so he's dancing and he's doing like – go back and watch. He's doing like a Russian dance like where he's really? like bouncing up <laughs> and down. I've always been
0: curious about that dance. Yeah, I've know, I have know exactly what you're talking okay, about. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that I'm not it the only one who noticed like it. It like they choreographed him and no one else. I'd be curious if he did that himself <laughs> Or if they were if or if he just like didn't know what to do and was awkward. Right, so they're like, right. okay, we're gonna teach him like a traditional dance.
1: Right. Well, but do. he's the only one who's doing that dance. He's it's, the only one who's
0: doing it. I bet
1: That's he awesome. made it up. If we if we ever get Elijah Wood on the podcast, this would be my dream come true. Although he'll probably never come on now after what I yeah, said. Yeah, you
0: thanks. I've to ruined you. our
1: chances. <laughs> but I will ask him if he came up with that dance.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's a great scene to start to finish.
3: <laughs> Genius. I was gonna say that's a, an example of uh, what I guess people call diegetic music, music where the characters hear it as well. Um, oh. and that's actually a, a a New Zealand band called Plan Nine playing there. No kidding. Uh, so that that was not that was not Howard's stuff. Uh-huh. It was a band called Plan Nine that. Did a lot of stuff actually for the Hobbit? Oh, cool! In, in the future, I love how
0: often they used local. They use local talent, like still yeah. Amazon's using a lot of locals, which I think is great. Right, but yeah. yeah, so many, so many locals were extras, and that's so great to hear. They used local music, and uh, and I, I was trying to place
1: awesome. the genre of music. And you just said it's diagenics. Is that is that what you said? And
3: diegetic is the the method of the music where. You know, we're watching a scene and there's music, but the characters hear that music also. Oh, oh got it. Got it. So that's kind of the technique that's being used. Um, but it does sound Celtic, if I were to It does sound like Renaissance. I was going to say Renaissance. Is that a penny whistle?
0: Yeah. Is it a penny whistle?
3: Um, yeah, I think so.
0: It sounds yeah. like it. You know, it it somehow just sounds like it sounds like it belongs in the shire Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) yeah
0: again it's like so it's still cohesive but obviously you said it was a local band so was it still written by howard shore or was this like their no i think plan nine
3: yeah i think plan nine made it up for that
0: okay Um, yeah because it's perfect and it's the perfect background music you know to us being introduced to marion pippin Who getting into that mischief, they get into the mischief of stealing the firework, which is not in the book, which is a wonderful Mm -hmm. addition by Philippa, um, who added this to sort of, you know, establish these characters and pitched it and they just thought it was great and was true to the characters. So they ran with it.
1: So there's also an appearance by the long lost fifth hobbit of the conspiracy, Fatty Bulger. Did you guys catch really? that at all? Yeah. Fatty
0: Bulger, he, he, where he is makes Fatty?
1: It's super subtle. So at the beginning of the party, when Bilbo is uh, greeting guests, you know, and it's kind of you can you can't really hear him what he's saying very well because the music is uh, it's kind of riding on top of everything. So it's more like background noise. But uh, Bilbo shakes someone's hand and says, "Oh, Fatty Bulger." <laughs> and fatty Bul- his back is to the camera so you see the back of his head but that's a little reference fatty bulger is in the fellowship of the ring uh, there you go so and for movie watchers for listeners that are movie watchers and not book readers and they have no idea who fatty bulger is because they otherwise totally cut him out there's a fifth hobbit who helped frodo get out of hobbiton and, and escape and was part of this conspiracy with mary and pippin and sam they're all buddies and they they help Frodo get out and he ends up staying behind to sort of guard the house and he he decides not to go with him. Um, and so he doesn't he doesn't have a prevalent role in the rest of the, the narrative, which is why they cut him out. But he was a part of the original group.
0: <laughs> wow. So I'm going to I never noticed that. What what we did get was a, a little sneak uh, shot, a quick quick shot of the Sackville Baggins mm, yeah. looking for Bilbo, which I think was a great little scene. Um, and but the difference here is that you know they're looking for they're looking for Bilbo. Bilbo grabs Frodo and they hide. And then um, in this whole during this whole thing, Frodo's suspicious of Bilbo for something. But in the book, obviously, Frodo's in on the whole thing. right 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 right. he knows exactly what bilbo's plan is so what do you guys think of that change
3: i actually i like it better in the book Mm. because it it plays to frodo's maturity more Mm. yeah right and and there's there's little moments like that throughout like when uh just off the top of my head like when they're in at the gates of moria and uh I think Boromir disturbs the water and Frodo is the one to say like, why are you doing that? Like he, Mm -hmm. he's like the, the, the adult of that scenario. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's more interesting in the book that he is aware and in on it. Um, But I can understand why they, they did it that way in the movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. There are, there are a number of scenes in the um, book where you see Frodo's maturity Um, Is really prevalent that kind of gets lost in the movie. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. his ennoblement does come through. I think in the movies, but he's a little bit more juvenile in places, I suppose. Because, like you said, I mean that one scene that you mentioned is really, I think, sticks out. um, And they actually reverse it. Bor, I think, isn't Boromir the one who tells Pippin not to throw the stones, right? Yeah, it it might, it
3: might be Aragorn, but either way, it's it's not Frodo. Oh, oh, I think Um, you're right. I
1: think it's Aragorn. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But yeah, either way, that moment's lost. Um, but I was thinking about the sackville baggins scenes, um, and I love the little sackville baggins nuggets in the book. You know, there's so much fun stuff funny. there. They're funny. It's there's so much of Tolkien's humor comes out whenever he's talking mm-hmm. about them. Um, but I was really thinking about it. I think it it made sense to cut those scenes from from the movie. Like when I was watching the extended, I was like, these scenes don't really fit. And th- there's basically just a scene of the Sackville Baggins is kind of stalking past and he's hiding from them. And you don't really understand what's we don't going have enough on. Con-
0: the viewer doesn't have enough context
1: Correct. to right.
0: really appreciate it. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it never
3: pays off. There's no, right. There's no payoff for that. Right. N- unless, unless you watch till the end of the third Hobbit movie mm-hmm. in the extended version of that, I think. Um, then you can go back and be like, oh, let's see who those people were
1: um but otherwise yeah there's no (laughs) right and like they don't have all the scenes after the party where all the the people come in and try and get their gifts and there's an encounter between frodo and (laughs) sexual baggins yeah like Like, they cut all that so so there's no payoff you're totally right
0: but the real you know the real treasure obviously of this whole party sequence I mean there's the wonderful, you know, firework with the dragon mm-hmm. and all that stuff, but the real wonderful bit is Bilbo's speech, obviously. Oh, so so good. great. So good. So good and fun fact that many people who are listening to this may already know at about around 24 minutes like when he starts his speech the cake the massive fake cake that they have was actually on fire it caught fire it was on fire during the scene but it was so good he was doing so well that they didn't they wouldn't cut they were like we have to keep going even though the whole thing was on fire i
3: didn't know that i had no idea yeah yeah. yeah. Fully aflame, for sure. Fully aflame, that's they amazing. just kept
0: rolling because his speech is so great. And even though they cut so much of the dialogue from the book, again, that's a pacing, you know, mm-hmm. we have to keep the tension on, keep it moving at all times. I I, I think this was masterfully done. This whole monologue is yeah, so good. Yeah. yeah. It, it has and the, the shots- same
1: effect to me as... as it, the th- what I felt reading it in the book is the exact same as how I felt when I watched the movie, I think. It totally comes across.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um, One addition. Absolutely- oh, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead. Um, I absolutely love, you know, towards the beginning of a speech when he's naming all the different Hobbit families and he mm-hmm. says, um, proud foot. And he says, proud feet. That. Is actually an homage to the original Rankin, the Rankin Bass adaptation that Peter Jackson saw and loved. Yeah, it's the you exact guys are both shot, you Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> Ex-
3: exact same shot. Yeah, exact same shot. Which there's a love. lot of those. in, in really, in the... are there? Yeah, there's there's videos on YouTube where it compares the the shots from that, and Peter did uh, imitate a
1: lot of those angles. Exactly, it's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. So critics that that lambast Peter Jackson is not understanding Tolkien or not being a true fan. I just, you can disagree with certain choices. That's fine. But you, you can't say that he didn't care about this source material. I mean, he clearly yeah. loved it. And, you know, just that is a prime example of it. I mean, who would do that, you know, quote previous adaptations that they love that much? I mean, that's such an interest that, that to me, yeah. he he loves it as much as I do. So I got to give him respect.
3: And uh, really quickly, just before we got to that speech, just to throw this in there, that was another example of the music and the sound design playing off each other. Because when you hear the, the, when the the dragon firework comes down, the music dies out Mm -hmm. to give it room, basically. And then, you know, when it explodes, the music comes back up. So that's just another example of that if you want to listen for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is it's cool to see the roller coaster.
0: Yeah, and it actually is visually just like a roller coaster too. The dragon like swooping down and up, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and yeah. I love the shot where you get to see all the hobbits' faces mm-hmm. lit up as they see the fire. That's that shot just yeah. gets me for some reason. It's such it's a magical. human moment. Yeah. It's such a human moment that we have every Fourth of July. You know, uh-huh. to, like, <laughs> the Fourth of July is coming up. Um, so
1: getting to Bilbo's speech, one thing that they did do a little differently, and this touches on what you brought up about how in the books Frodo was in on it, but in the movies he wasn't, or at least he -hmm. suspected, but didn't know for sure and didn't know how it was going to happen. Right. And so the Mm -hmm. moment when he puts on the ring and disappears is a surprise to Frodo. They, because they tweaked that a little bit at the end of his speech, when he says, um, I forget the exact line, but uh, you know, I, um, I'll be going now. I bid you all a very fond farewell. And Ian Holmes is looking at Frodo, you know, and so that that line is laden with meaning. Whereas in the book, it's all just kind of a, a fun joke he's playing on everyone. But in the movie, it has a little bit more emotional depth. Um, it
0: does. And he's you see him looking at Frodo for looking talk. at
1: him. Yeah, right.
0: And he's also got that self-talk, which I found really interesting oh, too yeah. that they put in there, that I've put this off for far too long line is not in there so so it shows like almost like a conflict right a Mm. some kind of struggle going
1: on right and it's not necessarily inconsistent with what's in the books but it's kind of like you know it's it's unsaid in the book so it's the kind of thing Tolkien does this a lot where he he will say what someone says or what someone does but doesn't tell you what they're thinking all the time Mm -hmm. and um, you know he, he doesn't do a lot of exposition about characters emotions necessarily and um That I like that as a literary technique because it's a blank for you to fill in and so you can put yourself in that character's shoes and imagine what they're thinking or the emotional context. Um, But in the movie, they fill in some of those gaps with what Peter Jackson thinks is going on. Um, And I do like Mm -hmm. his choice in in this scene um, to, to make that like an emotional moment between him and Frodo, kind of a goodbye. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So- we can't move on, and I got to ask you guys this, from this scene, um, we kind of skated by it. The introduction of Mary and Pippin, um, the fun pranksters who steal mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. firework. Oh, no, the big one, big one. I'm supposed to stick it in the ground? It is in the ground. i was your idea. <laughs> this is a change that I think a lot of critics make the biggest deal about. That they, oh. that Peter Jackson made Marian Pippin more juvenile than they are in the books, or at least the version of their juvenility, I don't know if that's a word, but that we see in the movies is kind of more modern and contemporary and goofy than, than what's in the books. And I, I'm curious what you guys think about that, how you uh, feel about the way they were depicted in the movies versus the books.
0: I really love it. I think it adds, you know, the comic relief that we really need in these movies. And I that could just be my American sensibilities. But um, I love that they're youthful and playful. And we also do get to see their evolution, you know, throughout the movies. They don't remain that way. They actually are quite um, changed and j- uh, some could say even jaded in, in some ways you know, by what they, what they experience, they're somber by the end. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, that really sets in. So, so no, I disagree. I really like it. And um, it is difficult to introduce a lot of characters quickly and really get to the essence of the character in a film like this. So I, I didn't have a problem with it. I enjoy it.
3: Yeah. And I think that I agree. I I really enjoy it. And I think that anyone that, that thinks that they're too goofy in a way should maybe reread like flotsam and jetsam that chapter uh, in the books or you know some of the early chapters with Pippin like he acts that way and I guess that maybe you you could say that you just you either read it that way or you don't right you either read it as him being super sarcastic or you don't so it kind of depends on your interpretation of it but um yeah that flotsam and jetsam Chapter for sure. They're like super snarky and goofy, and right. and they're exactly like this scene. So I, I never really had a problem with that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's within the range of reasonable interpretation. You know how you can read it, and um, you know to the extent that the jokes that are told are somewhat updated for a modern audience. You know they're designed to land with the modern audience or use so more modern language. Um, while i can understand why someone might have a problem with that to me the core of what's going on with these characters is that they start out being um, immature and over the course of the story they mature and that is conveyed very well in the movies you know maybe you think a joke is is too goofy and there are instances where the jokes are too g- goofy there are booger jokes in the hobbit you know i think that's maybe a bridge too far but with with That's Mary and sad. Pippin, um, I thought it was great, and at you know, I think Billy Boy and Dominic Monaghan, 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 their characters—it's oh, Monaghan. Mon- Mon- Han- yes,
0: <laughs> we always pronounce it wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, the last time fun. we talked about it, we just we just couldn't decide what it was.
0: We didn't know. But, uh,
1: <laughs> I you know I love their characters and their rapport, and they're so funny. Um, they're, they're two highlights for me. So I I am with yeah. you both. Yeah. I really like what they do with yeah. those characters.
3: Yeah, I think that you could say that those two characters are some of the ones that uh, most clearly change over the over the movies and and yeah, the the connection that those two guys had and still have is
1: so good. Yeah. I mean, like, the fact that they're doing a so podcast dynamic. together, you know? I mean, these which are lifelong wonderful. friends.
3: Yeah. 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 They are
1: definitely they are definitely
3: each other's best friends still, which is just awesome.
0: Yeah. So awesome. Well, fellas, I think we need to cut it there. And I, I've loved this discussion. I can't wait to get to more. I hope that you listeners out there are watching along with us and reliving the magic that is Fellowship of the Ring. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your wonderful insights. And how can people contact you or find you online?
3: Yeah. Um, the Music of Middle Earth podcast is on any podcast, um, to, to any podcast service that you use. And uh, like I said, um, I'm editing for the Prancing Pony podcast, so you should definitely check that out if you haven't already. Um, definitely aimed at book people. So um, you kind of go, you dive deep into each chapter with them. Um, but yeah, my email is musicofmiddle mail at gmail.com, and I'd love to talk music about. Uh, the movies and, and anything really
0: so before we go Michael do you want to put out our call to action
1: call to action <laughs> we're putting our fans to work if you like <laughs> what we're doing on this podcast and you want to support us um, please go out there and tell just one person about the podcast it can be your brother your mother your best friend uh, that guy that you talked to Lord of the Rings about when you were in seventh grade uh, if there's anybody you think might enjoy what we're doing Tell that person, let them know where they can find us. That will really uh, uh, help us out and uh, introduce us to a broader audience. So we thank you for listening and we hope that more people can join us. So join us next week as we continue this discussion and we get to really a critical moment uh, in Bilbo's journey with the ring.
0: Farewell, my friends. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks.
1: For the Grey Havens, Jordan, you did something on your po- podcast that I thought was really great. It was sort of a unique and special project. And um, uh, you indicated that you'd be willing to share a clip from that project with us and we could feature it on the Grey Havens here. But why don't you talk about it a little bit and, and tell us what we're about to listen to?
3: Yeah. So what I did was kind of the fullest extent of these soundscape episodes that I've been working on for a while. So every fifth episode of my podcast is a soundscapes episode. We take a reading from the book, my narrator Sherston reads it, and then we get a couple character voices in to start to bring it to life. And then I score it and then I add sound effects to it as well. But the council of Elrond was a unique, probably one time deal where we took a chapter in its entirety and, you know, started at the very start and went to the very end and created a whole audio play of the entire chapter from start to finish. And there's layers of sound effects and music and ambience and, you know, at least 20 different voice actors in it. And uh, it was quite the, uh, the process to bring it to life. But yeah, that's kind of, the idea that we had. And I, I, it was my chance to use my um, immersive audio software that I've gotten recently. So I'm using Dolby Atmos to, to have things move around you and pan around you and in, in super immersive um, environments. So with that in mind, when you do listen to this, you, if you don't have headphones on, you won't hear what you're meant to hear. You won't hear it at all the same way. And I had a lot of people that heard me say that and they were like, oh, okay. uh," And they just listened to it through their speakers. And they're like, this, I can't really hear this or I can't really hear that. And I was like, well, put headphones on, like I said, and uh, they did. And then they messaged back like, "Wow, this is crazy. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's why I said put headphones on. But, uh, but yeah, so if you don't have headphones on, you won't hear. um,
1: Because it's not just panning left and panning right. I mean, it really gives the uh, feeling that, you know, someone's behind you or in front of you. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah. This, you know, there's a part where a wave crashes and you can hear it crash from left over top of you onto the right side. Um, and yeah, you're in the council. So you're kind of, uh, if we're talking movie <laughs> setup, you're the ring in the center of the room and everyone else is around you. So you'll hear, you know, all the different voices panning all around you and moving. And yeah, it's quite
1: an immersive experience. And such a huge project that you took on. Like you said, there's a number of voice actors. And I remember when I was when I was listening to the episode, and I th- I think the episode starts with all the actors introducing themselves and saying what character they're playing. And I was like it kind of like went on and on. It's like, oh my God, there's so many actors that are involved <laughs> yeah. in this project. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, and
3: here and, I have, I have. I'll let you finish. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've read the Council of Elrond. There, there aren't that many people <laughs> at the Council of Elrond. Elrond, but you know what happens in the Council of Elrond is, you know, Elrond at some point tells the whole story of the Ring, and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien kind of yada yadas over that. He just says, and Elrond told the story. <laughs> But you know, you fill it in um, in its fullness, yeah, that and it's story really happens,
3: really cool. and it's yeah, and and there's a few moments like that where you know, and then they talked of this, and you know, we pulled from the Silmarillion or from Unfinished Tales or you know, all these different works and layered that in underneath. So you you know, and, and it's so awesome, and and it just shows how much work these people were willing to put into it, where you know, we needed our Elrond actor, Chad High, to um, read the Acalabeth, so we could slot some stuff in there or of the Rings of Power. And he read the whole chapter <laughs> and sent me that. And we took like 30 seconds of it. And the recording that he sent was like an hour long. So, <laughs> you know, people put in that kind of time. And, you know, another good example is, um one of my favorite parts is Bilbo tells the riddles, right? He tells the whole story of the riddles and we actually hear the riddles and uh, you'll hear someone that uh, you will swear is anti-circus. but uh, yeah, he, not... his
1: impression is incredible. Yeah, Spot on. he is
3: he, he is anti-circus for sure, but um, anyway, so we hear those riddles happen. And then after that, Uh, it switches and and Frodo kind of reluctantly tells his story. And the actress that played Frodo took her own, in her own words, summarized the story till that point. So she wrote it out, you know, what happened? You know, I went from here to here and we met Farmer Maggot and blah, 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 blah. And she wrote all that out. And then we edited it in so that as (laughs) the narrator is talking, Frodo is telling oh, the story yeah. underneath, which is just so, so much fun. And the cool thing about this is something that we were talking about earlier, this kind of nods to the reader where you don't have to hear the whole story. You just have to hear the bit of audio that comes up and says, and then the black Riders came in mm-hmm. or, you know, the audio fades up and it says Tom Bombadil. All you have to hear is that. And you're like, oh yeah, that's what, you know, I know what that means. You don't need to hear the whole thing. Right. So that was kind of a fun thing to play with. Um, But here's my stats for you. So there were 30 actors, (laughs) 44 different vocal tracks, 56 different layered special effects tracks, uh, two constant ambient tracks, so like forest sounds that just kind of go through the whole thing. Um, My solo violinist, Rebecca, she did two full passes, um, of the of the whole thing, and then I made thirty four different score tracks, and then there's three kind of um, rendered tracks of the whole thing in in the Atmos uh, immersive stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of.
1: Uh, I mean, that's like a, a full Hollywood happens. cast. <laughs> that's very serious.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was a good time, and uh, it was cool because there's people that you know may not have ever really done this before, and right, you know, suddenly they're they're part of this whole thing. And it, it's cool because some of them, some of the actors didn't even know what it was going to be until they heard it. Right. You know, cause right. I would, I would send like versions of it and say, check it out, you know, let me know what you think so far. And some of them just didn't have time or, or didn't want to hear it until it was done.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so, you know, we're talking like some character like Sam that has like two lines, you know, right. send it in, forget about it. And then like months and months later, there's this whole huge thing.
1: It's, yeah, um, it's part of this larger product that they had no idea what it would sound like in the end. Yeah, exactly.
3: So it was a lot of fun, but uh, it built a pretty cool community for sure. And uh, when we presented it, we presented it at the PPP mood, which was online. And it was a lot of fun because when we did it, we had the script fading from page to page. And it would show the text from the book, and then, like in a different color, it would show other text that we added. Oh, wow! That's from a different book. And so Chad built this script that is uh, it shows everything, so that you can understand what's happening. But you know, it'll have all the riddles there, but they're like beside the normal text that's actually happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it was a really cool thing to watch if you were there live. Um, yeah totally it's it's like one of those back. old
1: uh like uh christmas cartoons that, that it's a musical where like the words are on yeah, the bottom yeah. and the, um there's like a ball bouncing along the mm-hmm. words you can follow yeah, along exactly yeah
3: <laughs> yeah which is funny because i actually had um in my dolby atmos software it gives you a picture of a room and there's little balls oh. that move around uh-huh. and uh, i also had that up so people could watch it and and see uh see how things were moving and see where, you know, where, um, Glowin was sitting and where right, Gandalf right. was sitting and how they move and stuff like that. So it was fun.
1: Well, and so we're only going to get to hear a, a little clip here, but I encourage everyone who's listening to go check out the full episode of the music of middle earth podcast. It is really great to listen to. I mean, if you've read the council of Elrond, which I'm, anybody who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have, uh, it'll be really a trip to, to listen to it. You know, fully Mm -hmm. lived out in uh, all of its audio glory. So please go check it out.
3: I'm excited to hear what you all think of it.
4: (laughs) Next day, Frodo woke early feeling refreshed and well. He walked along the terraces above the loud-flowing Bruinen and watched the pale, cool sun rise over the far mountains and shine down, slanting through the thin, silver mist. The dew upon the yellow leaves was glimmering, and the woven nets of gossamer twinkled on every bush. Sam walked beside him, saying nothing, but sniffing the air... And looking every now and again with wonder in his eyes at the great heights in the east the snow was white upon their peaks on a seat cut in the stone beside a turn in the path they came upon gandalf and bilbo deep in talk
1: hello good morning feel ready for the great council
2: i feel ready for anything but most of all i should like to go walking today and explore the valley I should like to get into those pine woods up there.
4: Frodo pointed away, far up the side of Rivendell, to the north.
3: You may have a chance later, but we cannot make any plans yet. There is much to hear in the side today. That is a warning bell for the Council of Elrond. Come along now.
4: Both you and Bilbo are wanted. Frodo and Bilbo followed the wizard quickly along the winding path back to the house. Behind them, uninvited and for the moment forgotten, trotted Sam. Gandalf led them to the porch where Frodo had found his friends the evening before. The light of the clear autumn morning was now glowing in the valley. The noise of bubbling waters came up from the foaming riverbed. Birds were singing. And a wholesome peace lay on the land. To Frodo, his dangerous flight, and the rumors of the darkness growing in the world outside, already seemed only the memories of a troubled dream, but the faces that were turned to meet them as they entered were grave. Elrond was there, and several others were seated in silence about him. Frodo saw Glorfindel and Glóin and in a quarter alone, Strider was sitting, clad in his old travel-worn clothes again. Elrond drew Frodo to a seat by his side, and presented him to the company, saying,
1: Here, my friends, is the Hobbit, Frodo son of Drogo. Few have ever come hither through great apparel, or on an errand more urgent.
4: He then pointed out and named those whom Frodo had not met before. There was a younger dwarf at Gloen's side, his son Gimli. Beside Glorfindel there were several other counselors of Elrond's household, of whom Eristor was the chief. And with him was Galdor, an elf from the Grey Havens who had come on an errand from Círdin, the shipwright. There was also a strange elf, clad in green and brown, Legolas, a messenger from his father, Thranduil, the king of the elves of northern Mirkwood. And seated a little apart was a tall man with a fair and noble face, dark-haired and grey-eyed, proud and stern of glance. He was cloaked and booted as if for a journey on horseback, And indeed, though his garments were rich, and his cloak was lined with fur, they were stained with long travel. He had a collar of silver, in which a single white stone was set. His locks were shorn about his shoulders. On a baldric he wore a great horn, tipped with silver, that now was laid upon his knees. He gazed at Frodo and Bilbo with sudden wonder.
1: Here is Ordinary, a man from the south. He arrived in the gray morning and seeks for counsel. I have bidden him to be present, for here is a